merrymakers, and welcome to Pick 6 Movies. This is a podcast all about movies, most of them bad, and two knuckleheads examining those movies in greater detail than they deserve. I'm Bo, one of the aforementioned knuckleheads, and I'm joined in this cinematic journey by my oldest and best pal, Chad Cooper. In addition to giving the movies a what for, we dig into a little bit of movie history to add a wisp of how come. And we get the title of our show from the fact that we select six movies based around a particular theme. This is season 18. Christmas time is here. In this season, we're looking at six movies that are kind of Christmas movies if you squint hard enough, but they're mostly Christmas adjacent movies. And this time around, Chad's picked out a pick six first, a romantic comedy. So cuddle up with your loved ones and enjoy this yuletide thrashing of a movie all about con men and women and that most Christmassy of movie tropes, The Coma. That's enough out of me. Thanks for joining us. And now for a little pillow talk to get you in the mood. Take it away, Chad. When I think about Christmas or Christmas adjacent movies, there's one genre of film that swims in the sea of holiday cheer better than any other type of movie. I'm speaking, of course, about romantic comedies. And romantic comedies have found themselves in movie theaters for decades, but recently the genre has slowly faded from the marquee lights of your local cineplex. And the real question is, why have romantic comedies all but disappeared from movie theaters? Heck, their entire cable channels and streaming services dedicated to romantic comedies, and more specifically, holiday romantic comedies filled with movies, control-seeing, and control-being. A story formula that's so well-worn it's almost impossible to screw up. Everybody, in one way or another, loves a good romantic comedy, but what exactly is a romantic comedy? There's no official recipe for what makes a romantic comedy, but there are key ingredients that are tossed into the pot when cooking up a nice rom-com. First, romantic comedies involve two characters who are, as the name implies, romantically connected in a relationship that is created or tested through all manner of hijinks. These hijinks either drive people apart if they're already connected, or they push people together if they are naturally and initially repelled by one another. At the end of the movie, oftentimes, the two romantic leads end up together to live arguably happily ever after. Now, just because a movie has romantic themes and the movie has comedy does not make it a romantic comedy. A romantic comedy requires that the comedy of the film arise from the aforementioned hijinks that pushed apart or pulled together our two romantic leads. A movie can have romance and comedy, but not be a romantic comedy. Groundhog Day, Shaun of the Dead, The Princess Bride, True Romance, Her, High Fidelity, Deadpool 1 and 2, and Baby Driver, they all have romance and they all have elements of comedy. But these movies, which are all excellent films, are not, by my definition, romantic comedies. The granddaddy author of all romantic comedies is Bill Shakespeare. Much Ado About Nothing, A Midsummer's Night Dream, they're all early blueprints for the modern day romantic comedy that we know and love. Additionally, the musical stage was no stranger to romantic comedy themes. Operettas became popular in the United States at the end of the 19th century, oftentimes with light, humorous, and satirical storylines. These musical productions were characterized by over-the-top romances and usually happy endings. 
Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore and the Pirates of Penzance featured mistaken identities and damsels in distress and jokes and characters that audiences loved. And of course, these stories ended with the romantic leads better off than when we first met them. Shakespearean comedy of errors and the musical stage productions of GNS established a template for the modern day romantic comedy of the silver screen. Which brings us to the year 1924, when two of the very first romantic comedies hit theaters. I'm speaking of Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. and Harold Lloyd's Shy Girl. If you haven't seen these movies, shame on you, go watch them. A decade later, Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable appeared in It Happened One Night, which was a romantic comedy, and more specifically, a comedy of manners, which is a story that includes a rich person falling in love with a non-wealthy person, you know, people like you and me, just schlubs. Well, in this movie, It Happened One Night, Claudette Colbert plays a wealthy woman who runs off with Clark Gable, who's a handsome, unemployed newspaper reporter looking for a story. Hijinks ensue, comedy abounds, romance blossoms. The film was wildly popular for Depression-era moviegoers, and the film genuinely said, hey, times are tough, but there's hope in the world, you know, for you and me, and heck, all of us could fall in love, maybe. The film was critically acclaimed, and it took home one, two, three, four, five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. When a movie is that successful, film producers have the same reaction. Jesus Christ, how much money did it make? Well, go make another movie like that. Change the names of the leads, put in a different city, throw in a monkey, make the mom and dad, get Kenny Loggins, or Michael McDonald to make that thing pop. Do I have to do every goddamn thing around here to make a hit movie in this town? Get out of my office! And so, over the next decade, romantic comedies kept hitting the silver screen, providing stories that made you laugh and filled your heart with inspiring romance in an attempt to approve people's miserable lives. Katherine Hepburn appeared in 1938's Bringing Up Baby. Then a couple of years later, she appeared in The Philadelphia Story, two movies that evolved the established tropes of the romantic comedy where the female lead was the protagonist hero of the film. This was a major change to the genre of romantic comedy storytelling. These films also helped to define a subgenre of romantic comedies known as screwball comedies. These are films where the comedy of the movie is characterized more by physical slapstick routines and some snappy dialogue. The stories were unpredictable, much like the screwball pitch in baseball, which is what inspired the movie's genre title. After World War II ended, romantic comedies reflected the evolving roles of men and women in society. Alfred Kinsey published Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, which told America, guess what? Women like to have sex. And sometimes when they do it, they aren't married. And about this time, Hugh Hefter started publishing Playboy magazine, which told America, guess what? Men like to see naked ladies, and they're also having sex. And guess what? Sometimes they are married when they do it. Shortly thereafter, the strict moral production code of films gave way to a new movie rating system, and filmmakers were able to start making movies that reflected the changing social norms related to men and women, ushering in the romantic subgenre known as the sex comedy. 
Sex comedies were films that explored the evolving sexual relationships between men and women as these roles of romantic relationships were changing in the broader culture, both at home and in the workplace. Oftentimes in these sex comedies, there would be professional work rivals, a man and a woman. There'd be a little conflict. We'd have some hijinks. There'd be a spark of sexual tension. There a little bit of humor. Bingo, bingo, we find ourselves right in the middle of a romantic comedy. This included 1957's Dark Set, again starring Katherine Hepburn, this time with Spencer Tracy. Doris Day and Rock Hudson starred in Lover Come Back, and Peter Sellers and Constance Cummings were in 1960's Battle of the Sexes. These were all movies that explored the workplace tension between men and women who ultimately fell in love because that's what happens in a romantic comedy. Throughout the early 60s, romantic comedies genuinely disappeared from theaters in the United States as audiences flocked to a diverse variety of films, creating a unique blend of movies topping the box office in revenues. Top popular films of that decade included the musical The Sound of Music, the James Bond film Thunderball, Stanley Kubrick's Outer Space Adventure 2001, and the Disney animated classic The Jungle Book. The only real notable romantic comedy from the 1960s that resonated with audiences was 1967's The Graduate, which featured a younger man having sex with the heroine's mother. A theme I'm told by our younger male interns is quite popular on internet porn sites. Filmmakers in the 1970s changed things up a bit, and they began to make movies that explored more complicated relationships between men and women. Characters could now openly discuss sex and love and emotions in ways that didn't require a wink and a nod wrapped in a suggestive innuendo to get around saying dirty words. In 1977, Woody Allen released Annie Hall, a movie that not only discussed subjects like oral sex, masturbation, and how not to cook a lobster, the movie exemplified the evolution of romantic comedies from its 1950s counterparts. Annie Hall didn't end with a wedding in the last reel. The romantic leads are not together by the film's end. They are presented as real people who go on to live somewhat happily ever after, maybe. The movie reflected the perception that personal happiness and fulfillment does not require a romantic relationship and countered the previous notion that love solves all of a person's problems. The following decade found filmmakers in the 80s expanding the complexity of the romantic comedy with films like Hannah and Her Sisters, When Harry Met Sally, and Moonstruck. John Hughes explored the lives of teenage romantic comedies in the halls of American high schools with 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, and Some Kind of Wonderful, diving deep into the angst and beauty of young people falling in love. By the 1990s, romantic comedies were one of the most popular movie genres, regularly hitting theaters. Well, why was that? Well, during the 90s, there was a lot going on in the world of cinema, including the rise of experimental filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino and Lars Van Trier, Paul Thomas Anderson, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, and film studios were open to finding new talent and taking some risks while also hedging their bets on what they knew audiences wanted to see. For every punch-drunk love, there seemed to be a big daddy to make sure that any unexpected flops were buoyed by known formulas for making money. In 1989, Rob Reiner cast Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal in When Harry Met Sally, which was a huge success. And it also skyrocketed Harry Connick Jr.'s career with his crooning cover of Jazz Classic, with the movie's soundtrack going double platinum. The success of When Harry Met Sally led to a steady flow of romantic comedies throughout the 90s, and by the end of the decade, the genre had a strong presence in top-grossing movies at the box office. In 1998, There's Something About Mary, As Good As It Gets, 
and The Wedding Singer were all huge box office hits. A year later, in 1999, The Runaway Bride and Notting Hill showed that the genre was going strong with continued evolution of the cinematic formula. Julia Roberts, who earlier in the decade starred in Pretty Woman alongside Richard Gere, teamed up with Dermot Mulroney in My Best Friend's Wedding, which prominently featured a staple of future romantic comedies, The Gay Best Friend. Speaking of gay best friends, Kevin Kline starred in the film In and Out, which explored gay relationships in a romantic comedy set in a small town where Kevin Kline's character is kissed by a surprisingly mustacheless Tom Selleck. The holiday classic Love Actually was an ensemble cast with multiple interconnected romantic comedy narratives that covered a spectrum of relationships from young people to older people across cultures and race, and it touched on broken romantic relationships. But then we got to the early 2000s, and audiences began to turn away from romantic comedies. 2003's How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and 2004's 13 Going on 30 were both well-received. But for the majority of the decade, romantic comedies didn't bring in the results that studio execs were looking for, and those results were box office revenue. As the 2000s rolled in, movie studios seemed to be shifting their focus to franchises and high-concept movies. Plus, this was the early 2000s, and the novelty of 3D and the extra revenue that was brought in with 3D films led filmmakers to focus on movies that were big and loud and benefited from 3D, all things that romantic comedies did not do. And yes, there was a romantic comedy hit every now and again, Crazy Stupid Love and Hitch, but some observers think that audiences were really just growing tired of the genre, in part because of the heightened sensitivity regarding gender politics and the fact that most romantic comedies didn't reflect the evolving attitudes of the younger movie-going audiences as it related to romance and love. Less young people were getting married in the 2000s. Dating culture changed with the rise of online dating and dating apps. Following the same formula of dating and young professional women getting caught up on all these hijinks that leads to marriage, that wasn't what audiences were looking for. Plus, the creative forces behind some of the most beloved romantic comedies either decided to or were no longer capable of making these types of films. Rob Reiner, who directed When Harry Met Sally, said in an interview that his career could never happen in today's world of movie making. There's just no appetite for films like Stand By Me, A Few Good Men, and The Princess Bride. It's sad, but it's true. Filmmakers like Gary Marshall, who directed Pretty Woman and Overboard, and Nora Ephron, who wrote and directed Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, both starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, these creative types had a passion and talent for telling stories that don't really have a home in today's landscape of streaming video and available theater experiences. Theaters these days are dominated by superhero movies and animated films, live-action remakes of animated films, or polished-up B-grade horror movies. And most of the movies today are designed to do one thing, make money, especially when it comes to international distribution of movies. And American romantic comedies don't really sell overseas. Major film studios released nine romantic comedies in both 2010 and in 2011. By 2016, there were two. In 2017, there were no romantic comedies released in theaters. Most of the movies that came out featured actors and actresses that were new to the genre. Anna Faris, Katherine Heigl, Zac Efron, Jason Segel, Mia Kunis, Justin Timberlake, Natalie Portman, Ashton Kutcher, Kristen Bell. 
They all appeared in romantic comedies, but they didn't have the same draw as their 90s counterparts, which included rom-com mainstays such as the aforementioned Julia Roberts and Meg Ryan, Richard Gere, Hugh Grant, Drew Barrymore, and of course, the mostly kind of almost always absolutely adorable Sandra Bullock, the star of While You Were Sleeping. While You Were Sleeping came out in April of 1995 and was an incredible success, landing in the top 20 grossing movies of that year. A very important point to make here is that box office grosses do not translate into quality of motion picture. Case in point, the number one movie for 1995 was Batman Forever. <laughs> number five that year was that Ace Ventura sequel. Uh, that was followed by that Casper movie. Number 10 that year was Waterworld. The movie While You Were Sleeping was the 14th top earner domestically. Edging it out in the number 13th spot was Congo. <laughs> That's not to say that the whole year was full of gilded turds. We did see the original Toy Story hit silver screens that year, as well as the movie Seven. So we got that going for us. What do you need to know about While You Were Sleeping? It's the story of a sad sack city worker who hands out train tokens for passengers, one of which becomes an object of desire for the sad sack worker. One day, the passenger falls onto the train tracks and gets knocked out. The sad sack rescues the passenger, and through some turn of events at the hospital, this sad sack worker is mistaken to be the fiance of the train passenger who is in a coma. The passenger's family shows up and comedy and hijinks ensue. While You Were Sleeping was written by Frederick LeBeau and Daniel Sullivan, who went on to write nothing else. Why is that? Well, my guess is because they weren't very good writers. Why do I say this? Because the original version of the script didn't have the adorable Sandra Bullock as the sad sack city worker handing out train tokens to people. No. You see, the sexes of the characters or flipped, and in the original script, it was a guy who was the sad sack obsessing over a woman while handing out train tokens. Uh, this is, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Predatory. The screenwriters retold their movie and they wanted to jump on the rom-com bad wagon of the 90s. Nobody liked their story. Eventually, somebody at Hollywood Pictures, which was a smaller division under the broader Disney production of movies, they picked it up. They wanted Harrison Ford and Gina Davis to star in the movie with Home Alone's Chris Columbus directing the film. Eventually, John Turtletop was brought in to direct the movie based on his work helming the films Three Ninjas and Cool Running. That all makes sense. Fun fact, Turtle Tob did go on to direct The Mag, a movie that almost made its way into season 16 of this, a very, a podcast. Harrison Ford dropped out of the film, Gina Davis followed, filmmakers considered a lot of different actresses of the era, Nicole Kidman, Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, they eventually landed on Demi Moore as the lead in their film. Moore was riding high on her box office success from Ghost and A Few Good Men and Indecent Proposal. However, some scheduling conflicts prevented Moore from taking the role, and filmmakers decided to go with an up-and-coming actress named Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock was an actress who at the time was auditioning for every single role she landed. Bullock had growing popularity with her appearance in the film Speed alongside Keanu Reeves and Demolition Man alongside Sylvester Stallone, but she'd not taken top billing in a movie uh, yet. 
Bill Pullman was cast to play the romantic leading man in the movie. Pullman landed the role of Lone Star in Mel Brooks's Spaceballs in the late 80s, and he went on to play quite a few roles in a lot of different movies, The Accidental Tourist, A League of Their Own, Summersby, and he was the guy that Meg Ryan leaves to go be with Tom Hanks in the romantic comedy Sleepless in Seattle. Peter Gallagher and his big bushy eyebrows were cast to be the handsome guy who gets knocked out and goes into a coma laying in a bed for the majority of the movie. And the supporting cast included some real Hollywood legends like Mary Poppins actress Glennis Johns, two-time Oscar nominee Jack Warden, and Peter Boyle before he landed his most famous role as the dad on the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. The movie's location was changed from New York to Chicago, and they shot the movie in an unseasonably warm October. And the movie was set at Christmas, although it wasn't actually released until April. Well, that's odd. The movie opened in theaters just a few months ahead of the romantic comedy French Kiss, starring Meg Ryan and Kevin Kline, and the romantic comedy Forget Paris, starring Billy Crystal and Deborah Winger. The movie landed in theaters and it opened at number one at the box office, taking the top spot from Bad Boys. And the movie went on to make over $182 million off of a budget of just 17 million bucks. And it firmly established Sandra Bullock as a real deal movie star who could carry a film all on her own. Some of which were romantic comedies, including Two Weeks Notice with Hugh Grant, Forces of Nature with Ben Affleck, Two of By Sea with Dennis Leary, and The Proposal with Ryan Reynolds. But like many of the rom-com stars of the 90s and early 2000s, Sandra Bullock took roles in other genres that really pushed her as an actress into more dramatic leading roles that ultimately led her to take home an Oscar for her performance in The Blind Side. And Sandra Bullock wasn't the only rom-com alum who moved on from the genre to do more weighty roles leading to Oscar statuettes. I'm looking at you, Matthew McConaughey and Reese Witherspoon. Hugh Grant said he just got too old and ugly and quit the genre before it quit him. One by one, the film industry, the creators behind romantic comedies, and the actors and actresses that people love to see fall in love all walked away from this beloved genre of storytelling. Now, does that mean that romance is dead when it comes to feature films? Not completely. Independent filmmakers continue to push the genre in new ways, including Gillian Robespierre's Obvious Child, a romantic comedy featuring abortion, and Leslie Headland's Sleeping with Other People, a romantic comedy about serial infidelity. Kumail Nanjani's pseudo-autobiographical film The Big Sick is a multicultural love story between a Pakistani man and an American white woman, the latter of which becomes deathly ill and the former of which has to take care of her. I know nothing about that sounds very romantic or comedic, but Holly Hunter and Ray Romano are in this movie and it is one of the best romantic comedies that I've seen in the past decade. Audiences responded very well to Crazy Rich Asians and Love, Simon and to All the Boys I've Loved Before, showing the genre isn't completely dead. And much like big screen musicals, westerns, and murder mysteries, every now and again, a good script with the right cast will breathe life into this form of storytelling and show that it's possible to evolve the genre even more to meet the changing tastes of target audiences specifically young people who see the world differently, but they still want to fall in love and they want to be loved and they want to enjoy a good romantic comedy every now and again. Audiences love 
romantic comedies because they're escapist and they're charming and they're witty and they have heart. And this is true for all audiences, including LGBT and minorities, who over the last decade have seen themselves represented more and more in the genre. Whether it's on the big screen or a streaming service, romantic comedies will always have an audience. Romantic comedies reflect who we are as a society, regardless of where the story takes place or the people included in all of those hijinks. Romantic comedies connects people in a way that other film genres don't. They help us to understand how society and how we individually feel about love. And I think that's a good thing. And you know what else I think? I think it's time that we get one of the most romantic people I know in here to talk about this movie. That's right, I'm talking about none other than Mr. Romance himself, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, get in here and let's talk about this Christmas-adjacent Sandra Bullock blockbuster. Ladies and gentlemen, lovers of all ages, you had me at hello, I'll have what she's having. It's 1995's While You Were Sleeping. Damn, it feels good to be in love. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and I am joined, as always, by the man who makes my heart go pitter-patter like no other, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing today? I feel like I'm in the midst of a delightful misunderstanding that's going to lead to love. <laughs> Keep your pants on, cowboy. There's a real uh, Three's Company-esque vibe to the goings-on uh, for this episode, and I, for one, approve. There's no Jack Tripper, sadly, but everything else about it. I think that this is the first true romantic comedy that we have ever done we did a very nutty christmas about this time last year which starred sabrina the teenage witch running a bakery and falling in love with a sentient nutcracker but that does not fit the definition of a romantic comedy as was stated in the introduction or movie Yes. (laughs) This movie has that 90s era bed of music throughout the entire film that constantly tells you how to feel about the people that you're watching. It's like watching a pharmaceutical commercial where people are always, you know, happy or they're tossing around their grandchildren while Motown classics are being covered and they're talking about Alzheimer's medicine or something and a long string of side effects that might include Alzheimer's. That's good chad because the less that you're actually thinking in this movie the more entertaining it is and the more likely you are not to think that everyone in this movie is a maniac every single character in this movie is delusionally insane it's delightfully bonkers well you know i scratch that it's just bonkers i don't know if we've ever talked about this before i'm partial to romantic comedies i like a good romantic comedy sure i even like a bad romantic comedy is like this yeah like this i enjoyed my time with this not to get ahead of ourselves but i i I had never seen uh while you were sleeping before i'd always heard about it i no, i just it didn't miss me i never saw it it made like 200 million dollars you didn't give them five of your bucks to help hit that total why on earth would i have like i watch romantic comedies (laughs) when when they come on cable Uh and i haven't had cable in 10 years at this point right So I just, like, I have to go out of my way to see one. Do you find it interesting that romantic comedies have really withered as a genre? Because they're fantastic. There's a lot of great 
great romantic comedies. I mentioned, I think I did. I think I mentioned the big sick in the introduction. You did. And that's, that's a terrific example of one. And I think they're still out there, but I think they kind of fall into the super cheap category of you're going to find that stuff on Lifetime and Hallmark that use all of those same tropes, but, and there's a blue million of them, but how on earth could you know any given one? Because they all star Candace Bure and Melissa Joan Hart, and they, you know, there's 30 of them released a year. But those are crap. Yeah, but, and as far as the real movies go, I think that you do see them show up on streaming. Like The Big Sick, I know it got a kind of a release, mm-hmm. but it was mostly an Amazon original. And I think that's where you're going to find that stuff. I think that in the next few years, you're going to see maybe one or two romantic comedies hit the big screen or have a bit of a splash the way that Knives Out did. That it's like, oh, we're going back and we're doing this genre of film starring these people. And oh, by the way, it's really good. Like it's thoughtful and it's doing all of the things you do. It's hitting all the right beats in a romantic comedy. And when you leave, you feel good and you laughed and the two leads ended up together. I'm shocked that it's just disappeared because it was so ubiquitous in the 90s. You could not go to the movie theater and not see a romantic comedy playing in one of the 20 houses of your local multiplex. Yeah, that's true. But also there was a period in the 40s and 50s where you couldn't go to the theater without seeing a Western. And these days you can't go to a theater without seeing a superhero movie. All that stuff is cyclical and taste will eventually change. And I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime or not, but at some point romantic comedies will be a big thing again. At least for a few years but the point i made in the introduction is that where i think there's a flaw in that logic is that movies these days are made for an international audience and the idea of relationships between men and women or women and women or men and men or somebody in a dump truck i don't know what you're into but it doesn't necessarily translate to global box office success which is why you're seeing more and more on on streaming services but i think that also assumes that that kind of release system will never change it changed to that and I think it will again change to something else. It's the one constant in life is that wherever you are, things will be different tomorrow. And so, I, yeah, I think that one day, Chad, <laughs> romantic comedies will have their day again. They will rule the earth like the dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, I think you'll probably see it more in streaming television series. I, the Office, the Jim and Pam relationship was one, you know, that did that well. That first season of The Newsroom over on HBO that Aaron Sorkin did, it mm-hmm. had a wonderful romantic comedy storyline um, that was very Billy Wilder-esque that I highly recommend that. I recommend that whole season. It's got its hits and misses. And in the second season, boy, they blew up that romantic comedy storyline <laughs> real fast. <laughs> yeah, it got, got a little dark. It got real dark. Uh, what are we doing here? <laughs> I, 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 yeah, but I, I think you're right. I think in the short term, you're going to see a lot of streaming services that are willing to gamble on a movie that's five, ten million dollars, but is aimed at that kind of niche market of people who want to see a romantic comedy until people just get sick and tired of superhero movies which you know let's be honest seems like we're on the ass end of that yeah you know i don't know what comes after superhero movies but something will and big screen pornography even on the internet there's porno everywhere that's what people want to see in the theater bunches of asses and genitals flopping around and sweating that's what they want put that on the big screen Pornhub the movie You can just dial it. Basically, it's just like an Apple, like an AirPlay, where just whatever it is that you were looking at on your phone last, it's stepmothers and stepdaughters. Here we go. 
Let's talk about while you were sleeping. Our movie starts off and we see a train heading down the tracks and we're in Chicago and mm-hmm. we hear Natalie Cole singing, this will be, this will be an everlasting love. It's about mm, a crazy woman. <laughs> I love movies set in Chicago. I like, I've only been to Chicago one time, fell in love with that city. I absolutely adore it. And so immediately this movie gives me some good vibes. I'm like, all right, you want to set your movie in Chicago? I love the architecture. I love the L trains. I love the food. I love the people. The, uh, I mean, with the exception of at least the characters in this movie, but <laughs> you keep looking for Ferris Bueller to show up on a parade float. Like, Oh, I just saw it. Where are the po? Polish restaurants. That's what the question I have, because you couldn't go 15 feet in Chicago when I was there without somebody trying to st- stuff a pierogi in your face. So the movie's credits kick off, and Sandra Bullock gets top billing, good for her, followed by Bill Pullman, and then the title of the movie. And much to your happiness, Bo, we get shots of the Chicago skyline. We see all of the local landmarks. We get Wrigley Field. There's a statue of Michael Jordan flying in the air with a basketball palmed in his hand. We see people ice skating and Bo, this one guy on his skates slips and falls and cracks his skull on the ice it may be the funniest moment in this whole movie i would disagree because there's a scene of someone else eating it real good in this movie i think it's the same person yeah that i think is maybe my favorite moment in the whole film Uh, in fact i was talking to somebody about it just last night where i was like listen i was watching while you were sleeping the best thing about the whole movie is this favorable we'll get to it but um but yeah immediately i perked up when you see this guy eat it on the ice i'm you got me movie like you you show me somebody just face planting like this every 15 to 20 minutes you got yourself a five-star film the movie finally makes its way to the train platform of the l train where our movie's main character lucy as played by sandra bullock works but we don't meet lucy at her place of work yet instead the movie fades into a flashback of the mississippi river i don't know and we get a little voiceover (laughs) it's the mighty mississippi turn her father taking a raft down the river (laughs) old man river Lucy says in voiceover. There are two things I remember about my childhood. First, I remember my dad, and he'd get these far-off looks in his eyes, and he would say, life doesn't turn out the way that you plan. I was really surprised, Bo, that this shot of this guy and a younger version of Lucy is not holding an empty bottle of Coors. Or, like, the case that he carries his pull cue in. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Because on the ass end of this introduction, she's like, my dad would take me into the woods and we'd roam around and have adventures. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know about this. This is, you had me with the guy face planting on the ice, but a little girl and a, an adult man roaming in the woods having adventures as a slightly darker tone than I would like. We need to get 23 and me on the horn. I don't think there's a whole lot of crossover DNA between these two, but. Yeah. He said he found me on the sidewalk. <laughs> he said the fairies left me there. She also references, like, sometimes we'd have a broken down car. <laughs> Wait a second. Your dad sounds like a loser. Look, I don't want to throw stones or anything, because if anyone had a loser dad, this guy. But uh, we always had a working car. And no adventures in the woods. Mm. 
<laughs> Moving on. Yeah. She says, he would tell me all these exciting stories about Milwaukee. Oh my God. And then he would take me to a church where he claimed he met my mom and where they got married. And then he would have me go over and distract the priest. And then later we'd have enough money to eat and enough wine for him to get toasted. He said it was reverse tithing. I didn't know what that meant, but I, I sure did like a full belly. <laughs> She says, one day I asked my dad, how did you know you wanted to marry my mom? And he said, oh, that's easy. It was the day I found out that a wife can't testify against her husband. That's the day your mama gave me the world and promised to keep her mouth shut if she knew what was good for her. I took that to mean the globe that she got him with a light in it and not the fact that my mom mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> is the mom dead or is she on the lamb too? Because clearly Lucy and her pop are grifters, right? Yeah, I think there's probably an OD <laughs> is probably what happened and this guy came in with his pull cue toothpick tucked in the corner of his mouth he's like listen honey uh, I'm about to hit the road and oh shit uh, alright I guess you're coming with me let me check her wallet before we go we cut to the present day where Lucy who is a real sad sack of, she's working in this booth either handing out or receiving train tokens for the L train in Chicago I don't know what her job is it does not seem like highly skilled labor which is good because she clearly didn't go to any sort of school growing up <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> according to the movie, this is all the result of some bad breaks with her dad and some hospitalization and whatnot uh -huh. in reality, because I think she's lying to us, the audience as well, as well as herself and everyone else in this movie. But uh, yeah, I think this is just where like she's trying to go straight a little bit, <laughs> you know, like, let me let me see if I can just make life work between the lines. Uh -huh. One for you, one for you, one for me. One for you, one for you, two for me. My dad called this reverse tithing. <laughs> <laughs> Here we get to meet Peter, as played by Peter Gallagher. That's a nice casting, Bo. And Lucy sees Peter running through the train station. And Lucy says, well, the first time I saw Peter, he didn't give me the world. But his long, thick, full-bodied, wavy black hair from his eyebrows was too much for me to resist. And he came by my booth every day between 8.01 and 8.15, Monday through Friday. He was just perfect. He was my Prince Charming. We've never spoken, but someday we will. And I just know it. And he'll be perfect. And he'll be my prince. And we'll get married. And we'll have hundreds and hundreds of babies. <laughs> yeah. That's just how you meet anyone, Chad, is to watch them from a near and study their every move, get their patterns down. It's like she's going to kidnap this guy. Like, he's lucky that he fell on the tracks. <laughs> Because otherwise, he was going to end up in a basement. This is the moment in this movie that I grew suspicious of everyone's motives. I watched this movie without knowing that they originally wrote this to where it would be a guy being the creepy one in the token booth. And all I kept thinking was like, if this was a dude, he is going to end up taking this woman out into the desert and chopping up her body into tiny pieces and then creating a puzzle from them that has to be solved by visiting four different counties. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point it's just saw uh, this movie but the music here is very melodic we have lots of strings in that 90s piano and there's a golden embrace of the sunrise it's like, oh this is sweet she's a stalker 
<laughs> all yeah. of this has the components of a murder-suicide starter kit. I've got a lot of pictures of them, too, on my wall at home. <laughs> <laughs> we then see her talk to her cat for a while just to let us know that she's really off her rocker. As she's trying to haul a Christmas tree up the side of her building into her apartment. She lives on, like, the second or third floor. And this tree is, like, what, eight feet tall? It's something out of a Laurel and Hardy movie. <laughs> It don't make no sense. You don't do this. And her cat is on the couch beside her as she's tugging the tree up through the window. And, you know, she's giving some patented uh, Sandy Bullock patter here where she's like, oh, my God, I mean, uh, when I get $45 worth of Chinese food delivered, they bring it right to my door. I paid $45 for this tree. I should have got a Douglas fir. They're lighter. <laughs> And then, Chad, she just loses her grip mm -hmm. on this tree, and it falls back down to the ground, the, you know, 12 feet that she had lifted it. Yeah, but it takes about eight seconds to hit the ground. It's like... crash well that's be because of winter physics chad it <laughs> everyone knows that it takes longer for something to fall in winter than summer because of the cold air the molecules of the air are thicker that's why i never fell in love around christmas time Bo. always fourth of july mm. she goes down <laughs> to apologize to her landlord uh -huh. because this tree has gone through his window after again falling about two of me uh-huh and he's like listen it's okay i got a cousin who works in glass i got an insurance fraud scam yeah where <laughs> he's gonna fix this i'm gonna pocket the money then he says look i'm just still in trouble because of the barbecue joe jr had in the stairwell you should have been there it was great sausage then in comes the real hero of this movie as far as i'm concerned chad okay joe jr yep who is not from chicago but is instead from some little italy yeah that <laughs> has been there like there's a magic door from new york to chicago mm -hmm. that he walks through when he enters the film yeah he's from whatever musical was based on the songs of billy joel or yeah one of them uh four seasons guys <laughs> right. or something he's got the wife beater and the gold chain around his neck perpetually he's like forget about it <laughs> and he's just like hey lucy how about you come over and sit on my lap <laughs> The loose is loose. Forget about it. <laughs> uh, the landlord is like, you know, you ought to take a look at my Joe Jr. He's a pretty good dude. And of course, he just immediately turns around to bend over to fix something. Uh -huh. And we get a healthy amount of ass crack here. Yeah. Uh, that's only been funny once. And it was when Bill Murray did it. I would argue twice. Mm -hmm. And it was also when Butt Crack the Motion Picture premiered. <laughs> Actually, it was Butt Crack 2, The Crack is Back. <laughs> <laughs> say man what's up with your butt crack oh not much <laughs> oh this is a joke that like four people will get and two of them are on this show but then <laughs> sandra bullock then goes out for a hot dog uh, on her way to work and she asks for the usual from this hot dog vendor and he's like lady look i see about four thousand people every day i don't know what your usual is the usual a hot dog mustard and a coke this may be meant to reinforce how forgettable Lucy is as a character, but I felt like it was just another example of her disassociated attachment to reality, where she falsely believes she's creating meaningful relationships with strangers. And her 
boss, speaking of strangers, Jerry. Yeah, he shows up and he's like, listen, Lucy, I got good news. I'm recommending you for employee of the month. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. It is. It's because you do everything right. You're conscientious. Uh-huh. You're always on time. Yes. You're going to work Christmas wait, this wait, wait, year. Wait, what? Oh, come on, man. You got to be kidding me. Look, Lucy, you're the only one here who's, you know, a weirdo with no family. The rest of us have friends and attachments. <laughs> and we want to be with those people. And you, well, you got nobody because you're i don't know kind of off-putting so lucy i guess she agrees to work christmas day we cut back to her hanging tinsel on the tree that i guess she eventually hoisted up to her apartment and she's putting the tinsel on like one strand at a time more behavior of a crazy person which (laughs) what else does she have to do chad (laughs) it's also interesting how christmas is in this movie a little bit but then it quickly disappears it's like the film does a drive-by of christmas and then it's in the rearview mirror you never see it again it doesn't matter you could remove christmas from this film and the movie would go you could set it in summer where i like to fall in love but and it would work the exact same christmas does not factor into this one bit the magic of christmas don't mean shit absolutely not but if you set it in summer then it's how to lose a guy in 10 days and (laughs) we can't have both of those things existing alongside one another too much sexiness is the problem while she's at her booth she sees this family coming back from christmas shopping and loving each other and having gifts for each other and she's just like oh brother i'm just never gonna have anything like that merry christmas family then peter Uh shows up with his eyebrows which i think are prehensile i think that's actually what puts the change in the little bucket and he says hey merry christmas and she gives it a real And then he's like, uh, all right, weirdo. And then he takes off. (laughs) She berates herself. She's like, Lucy, you're so stupid. You should have said something like, Merry Christmas. Or you could have said, nice coat. Or you could have said, I love you. Or you could have said, will you marry me? That is all actual dialogue from this movie. Yeah. It's the ramblings of a crazy woman, Bo. And then she takes a razor blade from her little knit cap and just starts (laughs) cutting her arm. But not so that you could see it. Like, the sleeves will cover it. (laughs) Just to feel alive. Well, to feel anything, Chad. And then, while she's berating herself like a psychopath she sees some thugs i guess yeah it's a couple of white guys they go over and they start flipping peter gallagher's scarf it's not a mugging it's like a watered down form of bullying scott farkas and ralphie parker had more of a bullying relationship <laughs> in a christmas story than what happens on this platform hey that's a pretty good lunch money you got there be a shame if something happened to it look at those eyebrows they're really big and bushy why thank you sir they end up pushing him or something and then Peter Gallagher falls on the train tracks where he immediately gets knocked movie unconscious. And Lucy sees this and she runs out to save him. She jumps on the tracks, immediately grabs the front of his coat, pulls him close and goes, oh my God, you smell so good. (laughs) Yeah. And then she looks up and sure enough, a train is coming. Oh my God, it's a big train. We better move. Uh, Okay. I'm going to roll over real real fast and you're going to be on top of me. And so that's what happens. She rolls over to save him in the nick of time. Uh-huh. And he opens his eyes very briefly and sees her hovering above him and then passes back out. Right. 
they don't establish that this is Christmas Day, which, by the way, it is. Oh, I didn't. Get, I've watched this movie twice now, and I didn't understand that. Right, because when right. he gets to the hospital, the whole family shows up, and it's Christmas Day, which is why they have Christmas do the sequel on the twenty sixth. I remember that line, and I didn't. I didn't recognize that this was Christmas Day. Right, because it's a poorly made film. Peter Gallagher is cocked on the head. He's movie unconscious, and they take him to the hospital. And of course, Bo Lucy comes along because who is working the token booth? Did they find a mannequin or maybe a talented chicken? <laughs> to pinch hit for to finish off the day i think this is when they realize like hey we don't need anybody for this job it turns out that like the thing won't open until you pitch the coin in so uh, i don't know why we were having a person there in the first place at the hospitals excuse me excuse me i'm looking for the most beautiful man in the world who smells like that thing that makes women have orgasms and a doctor says um are you family and she says no of course not i'm a crazy person also follow-up question do you mean brute because that's what I wear. <laughs> Definitely not. So Lucy is all by herself, and then she mutters out loud, Oh my God, I was going to marry him. And this nosy nurse overhears this, and she infers that Lucy is engaged to the movie unconscious Peter, and thus our movie's romantic comedy hijinks are shifted into second gear. That's right. While the nurse takes her up to the ICU. Because mm -hmm. Peter is in a movie coma now, Bo. He is out of this movie for the next hour. Uh-huh. Other than to lie in a bed, which seems like the best part you could have <laughs> in this movie. She's talking to him in this cop approaches from behind like it talks to this nurse who got her in and he's like hey i don't think we can have anybody up here talking to these uh coma patients and the nurse is like it's okay it's his fiance and then Sandra Bullock, to her credit, is like, oh boy, I got to get out of here before somebody sniffs out that I don't know this guy. And she starts <laughs> to leave, but then in comes this pack of family members. Yep. It is Peter Boyle as the father. Bananarette! <laughs> yeah, who is one of the best things about this movie. He's got a really nice moment later on. But then the mom, there's a younger sister named Mary. Did you recognize the younger sister? Yeah, Monica Kina. Yeah, she fought Freddie and jason yeah when they went against each other yeah i was actually just recently watching that night of the demons remake she's in that's a long story we got the grandmother the the mom and the ref uh-huh uh, we'll have to see what the interest rates do in the new year thank you connie <laughs> gary mary and john <laughs> <laughs> oh it's such a good movie who am i leaving out is saul. that it? oh saul yeah uh, jack warden saul the godfather jack warden the titular fox in the private eye television series crazy like a fox he's a national treasure he's in the champ he was in robert zemeckis's early film used cars where he played twins one was good and one was evil which is the case with all twins. Car Used Cars is a good movie. If you never saw that and you like Back to the Future, go watch Used Cars. There's a lot of beats in that film that really follow a lot of the, the moments of uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. By which you mean the Night of the Demons remake? Of course. So we got mom, dad, sister, grandma, and Saul. That's our pack yeah. of family that come harumphing, harumphing in. Yeah. And they all bust in and they're all talking over each other and they're just screaming out like, my son, he's so pale. Where's the doctor? I'll sue somebody. Punitive damages. I got my shoes in case I need them. The doctor's like, wait, wait, wait. Calm down, all of you. Your son is, I predict, going to make a full recovery. Thank God. And then Lucy is like, uh, yeah, he was uh, pushed at the train station. It's no big deal. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Well, the whole family turns in like in unison looks at her. The dad says, who the hell are you? And the nurse says, you don't know what? This is Lucy, his fiance. Uh-huh. And she's like, 
Uh, but wait, it's not actually not what you think. But and the whole family, meanwhile, is like, oh, my God, he tell any of us about it. He didn't tell us what he didn't tell you. He didn't tell me. Right. Oh, my God. It's your fiance. Come here. Come here. We need to hug you. And she also says, and she saved his life off the train tracks. And like, oh, my God, you're not only the fiance, you saved his life. Oh, my God. Wait, did you push him on the platform? He probably deserved it. But you figured you could save him. You know what? You know what? Maybe you should probably be questioned by the authorities. I don't know. But, you know, just get in here. We're going to hug you. We're going to hug you because we love you now. Your family. The grandmother, meanwhile, is about to have a heart attack right here in this hospital. Uh-huh. Which, if you're going to have a heart attack, the ICU is the place to do Or a graveyard. I mean, either way, it's convenient. <laughs> the same bitchy doctor that told Lucy that she couldn't come up in the first place, which was right, but he he had a real attitude about it. Uh-huh. He shows up and he's like, wait a second, why is this woman here? Pointing at Lucy. The dad, at this point, goes, cut she's family and this is the point where the mom gives sandra bullock a big hug and it's like you saved my baby's life uh-huh. and so the shenanigans the wacky misunderstanding mm-hmm. is now established and lucy says nothing Bo. right she should say i'm not his fiance this is all a big misunderstanding But instead, she just kind of leans into this weeping hug from Peter Gallagher's mom. But then Lucy immediately takes the nosy nurse outside and says, oh my God, why did you say that? I'm totally not his fiance. And the nosy nurse says, why did you tell me you were his fiance? I never said that. I just said I was going to marry him one day. And the nurse is like, hey, how about you say you're single and leave it at that when you're talking to yourself, which is a pretty funny line. In Lucy's defense, she does regularly mutter her romantic stalking fantasies out loud throughout most of her day day life <laughs> what am i a cat why are you talking all crazy like this this nosy nurse she's the one who gums shit all up saul the godfather he walks over and interrupts the nurse talking with lucy and saul says hi i'm i'm saul i'm i'm peter's godfather nurse could you get your hands on some nitroglycerin uh, the grandmother in there she's had three heart attacks and, you know it all shook up her system and learning that this stranger lucy here is possibly a fiance or maybe a con artist you know she may have her hooks into peter you know she found something like that i did probably kill her all right by the way could you get your hands on 300 tablets of oxycontin and maybe some phenobarbital that'd be great too nurse i think i could really turn a buck off of that i'll cut you in on 25 percent. all right 30 all right make it happen all right i'm gonna leave an envelope with a thousand dollars on your nurse station then when i turn my back if that envelope would have happened to disappear and a bunch of bottles of oxycontin appear in their place whoopsie doodle it's magic time you know it's the christmas season it's a time for miracles let me ask you a question how much money do you make in a week answer it's less than a thousand dollars all right this is 15 minutes worth of work whatever your salary is plus a thousand dollars a week So she takes off, and then it's just Saul and Lucy, and he says, Listen, I gotta tell you, whatever scam you're running here, I'm in. You probably (laughs) saved this whole family, and I've been freeloading off of them for the past seven years. They've been paying my rent. I'm not making this up for the last four years, six months, and two weeks. And they don't even know it. I gotta tell you. The two of us together, forget about it. We are going to take these people to the cleaners, and they're going to thank us every step of the way. That's how you know it's a good con. (laughs) We come back to the waiting room, where the whole family is just staring at Lucy. And the grandmother pipes up and says, Tell me, how did you meet my Peter? 
And this leads to everybody arguing because there's something about Peter having a girlfriend named Ashley that they don't like. And then Lucy goes on to whip up this tale of complete bullshit about how she first saw Peter and fell in love with him. And the family is just completely enamored. Especially Saul, he's like, oh my God, this one's good. It's all in the details. Look at her. She's got him in the palm of her hand. Some things you can't teach. It's truth, lie, <laughs> truth. And she's got it down to a science. Listen, we're going to run the Saudi prince on him. You're going to be the mock. I'm going to be the cooch man. I think you know how this one goes. Later, Lucy is going home and she passes Joe Jr. on the stairs and he flashes some tickets. He's like, hey, you're free tomorrow. I got tickets to the ice cream. Uh, no, Joe Jr. I'm, I'm going to go inside. So uh, I've got a lot to think about. Later that same night, Bo, this is the night after Christmas Day. December 26, 2 a.m. And Lucy is taking a train to the hospital and she goes to Peter Gallagher's bedside. The family is naturally all home in bed like all normal people who aren't hucksters. This is the time where the city is just filled with alcoholics and frauds and Tom Waitses. That's the only thing walking the streets at this hour. And she goes to Peter Gallagher's bedside. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this. I've never met you, but I, I was kind of in love with you. And now your family thinks that, that I'm your fiance and it's so nuts. And Saul is just hanging out outside the doorway, getting an earful of all this. And he's just like, oh, this is gold, baby. This this is gold. First of all, don't you ever repeat what you just said to another living soul. It's you and me, and I got you over a barrel. I got two words for you, Lucy, the Spanish prisoner. You and me, are you in, huh? Let me give you two more words. Blackmail. That is what I will do if you try to get out of this scam right now. I will go to this family, and I will run you over the coals. They will send you out of town on a rail, Lucy. But yeah, so he hears all of this. He doesn't actually say anything to her. And then Lucy wakes up the next morning at Peter Gallagher's side. Like she falls asleep in the hospital room. Uh -huh. She starts to head out because her whole plan, one assumes, within the context of the movie is, I'm going to come make this confession to no one who can hear it and then get the fuck out of here before the family shows up. Right. Taking his watch and his rings. Sure, she's already got his wallet, so... But the family <laughs> rushes in, and this is where I completely missed it, but the dad is like, listen, we didn't get to celebrate Christmas. What with Peter getting almost killed and all? What with our son falling onto the tracks of the L? And being in a coma and everything. We figured the very next day, we'll just have a do-over. Merry Chris Mulligan. You should come to our house. By the way, Jack might be there what <laughs> inner scammer number three lizzie should just say no but instead she's like yes yes a thousand times yes and it's also here that we learned that the family is in the business of buying and selling estate furniture so they're vultures sure yeah i mean everybody's kind of on the grift saul and lucy <laughs> are professionally on the grift uh -huh. but the whole family is slightly dirty <laughs> You know, like on paper, it's all legal, but eh. on the way out, Lucy gets handed this box full of Peter Gallagher's possessions. An orderly gives it to her. Which I don't think that's how any of that works. But it's not. 
Here, take this. I heard you were the fiance from, I don't know, someone. Were, were you in that room? Yes. Here. As she's going into the elevator, there's a workmate of Peter's coming out. He overhears the orderly say that she's his fiance. And that's when he's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. He's engaged. Peter's had a rough year with the accident all. Wait, did he say that it was my fault? Look, we were playing basketball. I'm a lawyer. I carry a pencil. It's not my fault. In that scene. And we don't know what the, the deal is. That joke will pay off in a couple of scenes. Does it? You know, on paper. And then Lucy, meanwhile, is complaining to her boss, Jerry, about how this grift is going too well. So what, wait, 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 it's December 26th. Are they meeting so that he can fire her for leaving work halfway through her shift the day before? I think she gets a do-over because she's employee of the month. Oh, yeah. And that's sort of like a, an extra life in video games where <laughs> they just take the plaque away from you and you're back to even. <laughs> Jerry says to Lucy, it's no big deal. Just go along with it. When this guy comes out of his movie coma, everybody's going to be happy that he's not dead. They probably won't have you immediately arrested for lying to him. Just tell him you fucking made the whole thing up. Dude, he says, when he comes out of his coma, they'll probably thank you for all this. And it's like, well, that's how you know it's a good con. When you don't have to leave town all of a sudden, you get to stay as long as you want. Jerry is running a con too because he hosts a new year's eve party later he's living in a mansion and yeah. there's no way on a city worker's salary he's affording this house hell he can't pay the taxes on this place on a city worker's salary no if you are just the manager of the transit department or whatever he is you have to be like what secretary of transportation oh yes this is an appointed position by the mayor. Dude, this guy's eating lunch at a hot dog cart. At one point, his office, I thought, was just outside. Because he's do <laughs> at this point, he's doing paperwork in the out of doors. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame. We go back to Lucy's apartment. Um, and she has decided to join the family for their Christmas Day do-over. After dunking an Oreo cookie into her cat's milk bowl, it's gross. Yeah, you should never give a cat milk, Chad. Because it'll ask for a cookie? No, because it's terrible for the, their digestion. They'll throw up everywhere. Well, that's most food that I eat. Well, that's because <laughs> you're on, uh, conversely, you're on a purely liquid diet. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, you know, the, the solid food just doesn't sit well with you anymore. Lucy takes a cab to the family's home. And before she can go in, Saul shows up and he's like, hey, whoa, 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 loose, loose, loose. Come on. Hey, let's have a seat. You and me. All right. Look, loose. I'm Peter's God. I'm practically a part of the family. I'm in the will. They don't know it, but I'm in the will. And Lucy says, huh, yeah, um, my mom died when I was young. There was no will. I didn't get anything. And then my dad died. And then I had to quit school. And uh, I started working at the train token booth. Ah, uh, listen, Lucy, you don't have to run a scam on me, all right? A bullshitter knows a bullshitter. Look, <laughs> let me tell you something. When I was at my lowest... <laughs> I ran the scam on this family, and they have had me high on the hog ever since. I told you I'm a godfather in this family. Can you believe that? Never been a godfather to nothing or no one. Listen, I gotta <laughs> ask you one serious question before we go any further. Are you planning to hurt these people? Because if you are, I cannot stand for that. I'm not gonna hurt them. Good. I'm gonna take them for everything that they owe, but I'm not gonna hurt them. You know what? I believe you. <laughs> 
about this time. The mom opens up the door and she's like, oh, it's Lucy. And so everybody goes inside for Christmas number two. Lucy gets pulled into family photos. It's all very uncomfortable. She has a present. Like they get her a present, Chad. They they had. She's got a stocking on the mantle bow. Like this hasn't even been 24 hours, maybe 36. <laughs> and they have a stocking on their mantle with her name on it. It's nonsense it is i will say though sandra bullock is adorable in most things and in this movie she's doing the best with what she got and in this scene of the christmas holiday where they're exchanging presents and whatever you know christmas classic they're playing under it it hits the right notes to make it seem like it's pretending to be a genuinely sweet holiday moment Aside from the fact that everyone is a, a crazy person in the movie. Yeah, it's a nice shot as you're panning across everybody, like, getting their gifts and opening up. In the cut to Sandra Bullock's character, who doesn't have any of this, and again, on paper, this sort of justifies some of her terrible behavior because she's part of a family and she hasn't had that for years and years, as she says later in the movie. But that's kind of no reason to dupe an entire <laughs> an entire family but you know then we go to peter's apartment uh -huh. where we just see the answering machine but it's on a desk that has a photo of peter behind it uh-huh to let us know we're in peter's house but it's just a photo of peter it's not of like yeah. him and his girlfriend which is weird and then the outgoing message on the answering machine says this is callahan leave me a message and i'll get back to you ciao to let you know that he's a real douchebag. And using his last name as his moniker. Yeah. It's like, do you know anybody who signs their emails with the phrase cheers or best? Like, that's the equivalent of saying chow. I, there, I get a lot of cheers, which I don't care for. I use Boomshanka myself, <laughs> which, as we all know, means... May the fruit of your loins grow fruitful in the belly of your woman. <laughs> I think there's only three people listening to this podcast <laughs> that get that reference. And two of them are talking right now. The, here's a couple of things I like about this scene. One, it involves an answering machine. Uh -huh. and, and for kids who are listening, an answering machine was voicemail only was on a tape. Right. And also, it is a phone call from Ashley Barrett Bacon. Right. Saying... Listen, Peter, I've been thinking about it. I will marry you after all. And that's it. That's the whole message. I will say in a better movie, this is a delightful twist in our story that Peter, who is in a movie coma, does in fact have a secret fiance. And I would like this as part of a romantic comedy that's better than this one. Which also, by the way, Bo, quick pause, because we're getting deep into act two of our movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where a detail like this emerges, but but we have yet to meet the real love interest of our film. We are half an hour into a movie that's about 90 minutes long, and we haven't even met the guy that our heroine is ultimately going to fall in love with. I'm speaking, of course, of Jack the Brother. Who does enter the film at this point, yes. arriving 
at the family home late at night while lucy has grifted her way into just sleeping on the couch so she doesn't have to go back to her shithole apartment because she knows there's no breakfast waiting for her there mm-hmm. and this family is sure as hell gonna have some pancakes the next morning yeah, she's gonna leave she's gonna leave with a belly full of food you know <laughs> right go back and have a pillow full of tears they're probably gonna send her on her way with a cup of coffee and a box of leftovers jack is played by bill pullman aka president loser from independence day aka daryl zero when he shows up in the movie it's late at night it's probably what like two three in the morning now on the 27th of december Mm -hmm. and jack is wearing blue jeans and he's got this reversible denim jacket (laughs) he's a real (laughs) he's a real working man not like his coma-stricken brother peter who says chow at the end of his outgoing answering machine messages he's a man of the people all right which i got a question for you where has he been He didn't show up at the hospital on the 25th. He wasn't there for Christmas part due. He's showing up in the middle of the night on the 27th. I mean, I assume a bender. Right. Probably whores and crack cocaine considering it's the 90s. I was having some ayahuasca. Mm, Really sent me into a tailspin for a couple of days there. Jack comes in and his teenage younger sister, who's also up in the middle of the night. So Jack can have somebody to talk to. They're all excited to see each other. And the sister says, shh, don't wake up Peter's fiance, Lucy, who's sleeping over on the couch. And Jack says, hmm, that's not Peter's fiance. It's like, "Uh oh, Bo, we got we got trouble. Uh And then the sister says, have you met her? And Jack says, hmm, no. Why would he say that Lucy isn't Peter's fiance if they've never met. I'm not sure. I don't know if she doesn't match a description or something. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Just change the dialogue to Peter got engaged. Like, like yeah. have him be as, you know, surprised by this as anybody. And then Chad, we get the best scene of the movie as a kid is delivering paper uh-huh. in the neighborhood the next morning. Yep. And he chucks, I don't know what, two, three yep. newspapers just fine. It's two. And yeah, rules of three, sure. And on that third throw, man, yep. he just overcommits on the throw and eats it hard on this sidewalk. It is wonderful. I laughed so hard because all I could think about was that poor stunt person who had to do this and probably got hurt. <laughs> I mean, it's face first into a snowy sidewalk. It is glorious. It's not funny in the context of the movie, but the thought of them filming it made me laugh so hard of just like, you know, all right, uh, Brian, Brian, come over here. You're going to get on the bike. <sighs> okay. And, and you're going to go one paper in, two paper in. Mm-hmm. Then you just twist the front of the bike and just put your teeth on the sidewalk. It'll be a big laugh in the theater. I got to tell you, Chad, within the context of the film, I was laughing. Anytime I see somebody eat it like this, I don't care how real it is or is not. This made me laugh. It's like something out of jackass. Yeah. They had to take him to the hospital after this. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paperboy, and <laughs> this is Newspaper Faceplant. <laughs> 
<laughs> Back inside the house, Lucy's cleaning up the room where she slept. She's putting the covers folded back on the couch. She's placing the throw pillows oh so delicately. She's, you know, touching up her hair. She sits down to write a thank you note to the family for their hospitality for the day before and the wonderful times. No! You leave! You get the hell out of this house as quick as you can! Now she knows she's got him on the hook, though. Like, she saw that stocking hung by the chimney with care she's golden and so she's slipping out of the house but not before she grabs some shit out of the fridge like you said she straightened up some like she's laying the groundwork for the return jack is there and he's been watching all this <laughs> he's standing at the bottom of the staircase as she's headed towards the front door and jack says mm, good morning hey <laughs> and, she, and she's like oh, 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 good morning jack and I'm like, your dad taught you well. A good grifter remembers every name. It's all uh -huh. about those small details. So it makes a grift believable. Again, lie, truth, lie. That's how you do this. Yeah, so he's like, hey, I just wanted to say something to you. Uh, well, please don't call the cops. Call the cops. I was going to say, welcome to the family. Oh, that's that's what I was going to say. Thank you for saying that. And I don't know why I said, please don't call the cops, but th th thank you. And then a cab's like, honk, honk. I got to go uh, give some presents to children. By the way, did you see that there's a <laughs> young man outside that needs some <laughs> medical attention? Anyway, got to go. He's screaming and yelling and holding most of his teeth in both of his hands. <laughs> yeah, it's Right, it looks like a scene at a reservoir dogs out here. <laughs> You're gonna be okay. <laughs> Say the fucking words. The biggest mistake that this movie makes is that Lucy continues to make decisions to keep up this ruse because she's sad and lonely and she has no family. These are all legitimate reasons for this daughter of a thrice convicted con man. <laughs> who has no problem warming her way into this family so that she has a sense of belonging. But in a better movie, you have Lucy make these decisions to keep up the false narrative or the con actually because she's a kind person and have her choice to pretend to be the fiance 100% in service to someone else. They kind of do this with Saul saying, yeah, you leave the family, the grandma's gonna die. But it doesn't really take hold. This is also in line with the whole Ashlet Barrett Bacon thing, where that is a thing that should matter more, and it feels like an afterthought. And just like the rationale for her doing this feels like too much of an afterthought. Like, if both of those things were a little bit strong, Longer uh -huh. and a little more clearly defined than you know maybe maybe get yourself an all-time classic here chad but yeah but but all of her motives in this are at the end of the day self-serving you got to put lucy in a situation where she is a victim of circumstance and you have these shenanigans and hijinks happen to her not because of her you almost need a scene where she's going to come cling to the grandmother like just through, through conversation or something they're the two of them are alone and she can say look i need to really tell you something and then as she's telling this story the grandmother starts to get upset and has a heart issue and they have to get her pills real quick and then you can kind of reinforce the idea you think of like, you heighten the stakes you make it more clear that like if she doesn't go on with this that yes she runs the risk of actually killing this woman here's how i think you fix this movie you don't have lucy in love with peter at all she's just a sad sack lonely token worker 
okay? Peter still gets knocks on the tracks. She still saves his life. And at the hospital, when she's there, it's, you know, proven that she's a kind person and not a stalker. This is where you have Jack show up to be the first one to check on Peter. So he's a good guy, as opposed to this shithead who's off on a... (laughs) like a crack cocaine bender with his buddies. And then Jack and Lucy start talking. They flirt. There's a spark. Then all the family rushes in. They say, who is this? And it's Jack who says, she's Lucy. She saves Peter's life. You start it there. And then, I don't know, the grandmother's so happy that they saved him. Mom's happy. Everybody's happy. And this is all, you know, kind of working together. But then ultimately you have a situation where Peter is actually engaged to a woman named Lucy, the mystery blonde that we meet later, and they mistake it for her. And essentially the family is sort of the one that pushes on her that, oh, you're engaged to Peter and she's like, like, oh my, no, no, no. Oh my gosh. But she's sort of caught up in all of this, you know, nonsense. And you have her and Jack be the one that are kind of keeping up the ruse because he's like, hey, the family really loves you. And as they're going on and on, they can't give in to their romantic sparks. They fall in love along the course of keeping up this ruse. Right. And you have them be the partners in crime and all of the goofy romantic comedy nonsense is what pushes them together, but they can't do it because of the ruse. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, I agree. While you were still sleeping. I still know what happened while you were sleeping. I will always know what happened while you were sleeping. Those are the sequels. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Every time I've ever heard while you were sleeping, it involved you farting a lot. Yeah, or while you were sleeping, comma, you snored so much I had to go downstairs. (laughs) So let's go to church, Chad. With the whole family, right? Uh Uh-huh. It's mass time because we're uh, in Chicago and these are Catholics. Uh That old guy from Home Alone is there looking at his granddaughter singing and worrying about his estranged son. Sure. And the dad is getting grilled by Jack about Lucy, who's just like, hey, so how long has this Lucy thing been going on? Hey, what's what's going on with that, huh? Look, I, I think I need to have a talk with you. And the sister is like, go ahead. This is the place to have the talk because he can't kill you here because it's a church. Uh-huh. One of my favorite moments in the movie happens when the grandmother, kind of apropos of nothing, says, how did Joe Kelly get to be elected? He takes marijuana. Totally random line. Nobody was talking about this Joe Kelly son of a bitch. It just pops up and it made me laugh. Who's Joe Kelly? I don't, I think it's just some dude that she sees. <laughs> we come back to Lucy's apartment and she has the box of belongings that that orderly gave her before he called her a fiance and we heard about the business partner saying he had a pencil in his pocket. She opens up his wallet. There's six credit cards. There's a video rental card. That's nice. There's a photo of two boys, presumably Peter and Jack. And then there are just single photos of Peter. Peter at a ski lodge and a photo of Peter wearing a sweater around his collar and he's got a racket of some sort. It's just action shots of Peter that he keeps on himself just to remind himself how cool he is, I guess. There's also a brown paper bag with a small flat can in it. Originally, I thought it was a can of tuna fish, but it turns out it's a can of cat food. And if you're making a movie like this, here's what you do, Bo. You show a close up of the cat's can label and it says cat food on it. Mm -hmm. And then you have Lucy say, cat food? Oh my gosh. There's probably a cat I need to feed, but they don't do any of that. She just holds up what could be arguably a can of tuna fish or shoe polish, and she just kind of runs off. Yeah, she sneaks past Joe Jr., who is literally just hammering the engine of his car. Uh Uh-huh. I gotta make it work over here, bada-boom! Forget about a bing! Cannoli! 
<laughs> so Jack shows up just after Lucy has left. Why is Jack there, bro? I think he's just doing a little follow-up. Based on what? He's just a detective at this point. He's Detective J. He's Daryl Zero. Based on what? There is no reason to suspect that this woman is up to no good. The trick is not to look for something. The trick is to look for anything. And then you're bound to find something. Jack says, hey, you stranger, I'm looking for someone named Lucy who lives in apartment 201. I don't know her last name because it's not important. Bada bing, I own this place. Forget about it. I know Lucy. I'm dating her. And then he gives it the old forearm piston pump, implying Mm -hmm. that he's having sex with her pretty classy meanwhile lucy has slipped into peter's building past the doorman uses his keys to break in yep and this is a very 90 chic kind of apartment Uh, where everything's very sterile and white and industrial looking looks like the neighbor's house in christmas vacation yes and it all screams an asshole lives here absolutely yeah this is a it's real yuppie kind of Uh uh decor while she's wandering around this apartment going kitty kitty hey kitty come on kitty jack rolls in uh-huh he's sneaking in lucy opens the door looking for this cat real fast and hits him right in the face and the music is look at these two assholes they're falling in love <laughs> and like jack is holding his nose like like oh and she's like oh my gosh did I just hit you in the face as opposed to Jesus Christ, there's someone in this apartment with me? So she gets him some ice out of the freezer and we see a bunch of Baskin Robbins in there. A lot of Baskin Robbins product placement in this one, though. Oh my goodness. Uh-huh. He says, hey, what are you doing here anyway? Huh, I'm nothing. I mean, why would I be doing anything weird here? I'm just feeding a cat. Oh, he doesn't have a cat. And then this cat right on cue comes in. Yep. And the phone rings and Bill Pullman's like, no, you wait there. I'm still very suspicious of all of this. I'll answer it. And he picks up the phone and he goes, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. You don't say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. It's for you. He hands over the phone and she talks for a second, hangs up and is like, ah, it's just the hospital. They're asking for blood. They do this when you have somebody in in the hospital that's a loved one. Hey, you want to go give some blood? Can we pause for a moment and talk about the fact that a cat has been in this apartment since Christmas Day, the morning of Christmas Day. Minimum three days at this point, yes, with no food, yeah. And not only is it hungry, yes, but whatever litter box was left there is overflowing with cat turds and ammonia-filled piss patties. <laughs> oh, sure. There's going to be some emotional shitting around the litter box as well for being left alone so long. Cats are dicks. That's one of the things I respect about them. So after the phone call, Jack says, yeah, let's let's go to the hospital together. So they head down to the garage and Jack insists that they take Peter's car, which I would have thought his car would have been near the train station, but maybe he walked. Again, I'm getting caught up in the details. And he's like, so do you know which one's Peter's car? And Lucy hits the key fob and the car beeps and it's easy to find. Again, I don't know why he is so suspicious of this woman. Yeah, it doesn't have any grounding in terms of the movie itself. Other than we know she's a fake, but why on earth would he think she's a fake? Nobody talks about the fact that she doesn't have an engagement ring on. That seems like a big miss. (laughs) Which the way you fix that in my version of the movie, they say, where's your engagement ring? And then earlier she's referenced the fact that she wears her mother's uh, wedding ring around her neck. And then she pulls that out and says, oh, I wear it around my neck because at my work, 
it might get damaged or hung up or caught. And that's how my mom used to wear my dad's. And they're like, oh, we love you so much more. I'll do you one better, Chad. You really want to sell this. Uh-huh. You say, oh, I'm having it resized. Ah. And then she and Jack have to go shop for an engagement ring together. In my version of this movie, not only do they shop for it, the dad wants to pay for her wedding dress. And so she has to go get sized for a wedding dress. Like, And then they go looking for cakes. Like, This is all happening quickly, and they're planning a wedding, and you have Jack and Lucy together planning a wedding, falling in love, you know, sticking icing in each other's mouth and shit like that. But it's all a, a big ruse. This would be a good movie. Somebody needs to call us. I think that someone is the Lifetime Network. (laughs) Yeah, so at the hospital, they're given blood. Jack continues this line of questioning about what uh, his favorite color is. Like, just all kinds of crazy-ass questions. Lucy wraps up her bleeding first. (laughs) I guess I'm all done. Gotta get out of here. Bye. And she starts taking off, and Jack is like... Hang on a second. I still got a few questions. He stands up and immediately goes over. Is that funny, Bo? Eh, it was more funny when the kid on the bike ate it, but <laughs> it's something, I guess. It's a little derivative here. Yeah, at this point, like I've seen a, an ice skater <laughs> just totally crash face first into the ice. I've seen this kid on a bike lose his <laughs> part of his nose and four teeth. And now you just want me to feel anything for Bill Pullman <laughs> slightly just oh, falling down in a hospital. It, it don't work like that. You got to raise the stakes. He needed to fall out of a window onto a onto a pile of bricks for me to get another laugh out of that. They then head over, or Lucy and Jack head over to the hospital room where the whole family's hanging out with Peter. And someone says, hey, maybe we should sing to Peter. And Jack says, yeah, that's a great idea. Hey, Lucy, what's Peter's favorite song? And the mom pipes in and says, puff the magic. But before she can say the word dragon, Lucy jumps in on that. She's like, dragon! I like when she repeats it. Dragon! Dragon. Yeah. It's dragon, everybody. Come yeah. on, don't be, don't be an idiot. Those genetic infused grifting skills just instinctively kick in it's what separates the chumps from the champs man the family steps in and is like hey what is with the third degree with our favorite person on earth lucy (laughs) and he's like why don't you ask her about her boyfriend joe fusco i creepily followed her back to her apartment and met this guy who had ice capade tickets and he said he was fucking her and grandma is like, how many times do I have to tell you not to stalk? Oh, my heart. <laughs> and Lucy ends up proving, look, I, I of course I'm his fiance. Why would I be his fiance? Look, I'll tell you something that nobody knows about him. Um, He's only got one testicle. And they're like, what? Stop. Stop right there, Bo. There is no reason for her to say this at all. That guy earlier said they were playing basketball, there was an accident, and it involved a pencil. For you to take the giant leap that something happened to where one of his nuts got shish kebobbed and now he's only got one ball? No! I I think the implication here, Chad, because I, I thought the same thing, and then on the second watch, the way that the cut happens in the scene with the co-worker, I think the implication is that conversation kept going and he revealed what happened. They should have let us go along for that conversation. 
I agree. It's a bad choice because here you're, you're left wondering like, how the hell does she know that? You know what? If they showed us that and she's holding the box and the guy's like, I had a pencil and it stabbed him in the dick and now he's only got one ball. The character Lucy would have just taken that box of belongings, got in the elevator and never would have come back. Like I, th- I'm not dealing with this. I don't, I want a real man. Not this half a man that I've suddenly learned is lying in this hospital bed. There's a big commotion about who's going to corroborate this crazy story. And mom's like, fine, I'll take a peek. And I was like, you can't just eyeball that. No pun intended. Which she doesn't. I think she feels around on her adult son's scrotum to see if he has one testicle. Which it turns out he does only have one testicle. So everyone is now convinced, including Jack. And so we cut to an elevator with the family climbing on. There's a joke, in quotes, as Grandma says, Well, I guess the bright side is he has more room in his jockey shorts. And so back home, Chad, Lucy is in her shitty apartment and there's a knock on the door from Joe Jr. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's like, knock, knock. And <laughs> she opens it up and he's complaining about the fact that he's, Lucy stood him up for the ice capades. And she's like, I didn't stand you up. I don't, I don't do that. I, if I was going to take you for a, a couple of tickets, I'd take you for a couple of tickets, but that's not what the, what the deal is here. Then another knock comes at the door uh-huh. and she makes Joe Jr. Hide for no good reason mm-hmm. in the closet, which is way more suspicious. Yeah. Unless you're playing hide and seek or moments later, you're going to jump out and say, surprise, this is a real admission of guilt. Yeah, what ha- what you ought to do in this scenario is just say, Joe Jr., get the hell out of here. When I open this door, yeah. I want you to be leaving as the other person comes in. Yes. Instead, she hides him in the closet, and then Saul shows up. Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. <laughs> Look, you are playing this like a Stradivarius. Oh, my God. This is where he confesses. He's like, listen, Lucy, I got to tell you. I was just outside the door the night that you told Peter, an unconscious man, everything. And she says, you're right. I will I will tell them everything. And he's like, oh, Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Whoa! Oh, nobody's talking about confessing nothing. You don't say a thing. You double down. Could you be your own twin? <laughs> How good are you at throwing your voice? If you can be your own twin, convincingly. We take out a life insurance policy. We kill the twin. All right. I know a guy who can get a corpse. You and I, we're, we got 500 thou. Easy. Do you ever see double indemnity? Hey, do you happen to have Peter's video card? We. Can, <laughs> this movie is on him. <laughs> on his way out, though, after telling her, like, not only do I know who you are, but don't say nothing. And I don't care. I'm not upset about any of this. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm proud. Look at you, loose. <laughs> Look, you're kind of like the daughter I never had, or at least the daughter I never claimed. Then on his way out, he says, listen, how did you know about the testicle? You know what? I don't even want to know. It was beautiful. I just want to appreciate it as the work of art that it is in the grand history of hucksterism. But I, you know what? I got to ask. Did you cut off the other testicle? Don't answer. I'm not, don't answer. Don't answer. Don't answer. I, if if so, if this goes sideways, I don't want to testify against you in court. Uh, just you know what? Maybe we should get married. That way, we can't testify. <laughs> he leaves. She opens the closet door. Joe Junior is in there trying on her shoes. 
Yeah, that's funny. She says, are you trying on my shoes? And he goes, Jimmy Choo's. I was just standing up and I slid and I fell right into him. Uh, Jack shows up. Immediately. Yeah. And so she has to keep Joe Jr. in the closet for a little while longer. When Lucy opens the door, he says, was that that weirdo Saul that was always hanging around my family looking for a few bucks? <laughs> yeah, he was just saying hi. Uh, Anyway, what are you doing here? Yeah, my parents have an engagement present for you. You want me to bring it up? It's a couch we couldn't sell at an estate sale. And they thought, we'll just give it to you and my no good brother. Turns out someone committed suicide on it. We could never restore it from all the blood stains. So, you know, it's yours now. I presume it's haunted. That sounds great. That sounds great. Let's take it over to Peter's place because I don't want you to find the weirdo that's hanging out in my closet, trying on my shoes and stuffing panties down the front of his pants. Yeah, so they take off. Mm -hmm. When they get to Peter's apartment building, Jack parks super close to the car in front of him yeah. because they need room to unload this couch right which doesn't make sense because there's like three parking spots behind him but anyway when they open it up though lucy sees this wooden rocking chair and she's like oh my god is that my gift you shouldn't have i love this i want it right now be sure you take it up and you know lift with your legs <laughs> he's like no 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 that's not yours that's something i made yours is the blood-stained couch over there that also has a lot of semen stains that wasn't part of the suicide but that was for me that's my contribution to the wedding gift late at night you can hear it crying I like to fuck couch cushions <laughs> lucy is bowled over by this rocking chair mm -hmm. and she's like oh why don't you do this full time because you could bl totally blow off your dad maybe you should kill him have you seen double indemnity you imagine taking her to cracker barrel she'd lose her goddamn mind <laughs> no kid you mean this whole porch is just nothing but rocking chairs <laughs> oh my god oh my god oh my god let's play checkers oh it turns out i'm pretty smart <laughs> Is that because she did the golf pin thing? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's why I said pretty smart. Um, <laughs> Jack, meanwhile, says, yeah, I thought about doing this for a living, but I can't because, well, first it was Callahan and Sons, and then my terrible brother decided he was going to go off and pursue a life of shallow capitalism. And then it was just Callahan and Son. So if I leave just old man callahan by himself <laughs> oh i guess i get that i mean i've never done anything for other people but i understand <laughs> so they're taking this love seat up and this doorman stops them hey you two hey do you do you live in this building hey buddy this is pete gallagher's fiance oh jeez, peter gallagher he's got a fiance i ain't never met her but then again i'm brand new hell for that man i don't know who peter gallagher is this all sounds legit. <laughs> Do you need a cash loan, huh? Yeah, I could uh, use a couple of bucks. Do you just have a checkbook? Would you mind giving it to me? Uh, you know what? I don't really have that, but I tell you, I, I can give you a check, but you're probably going to need some form of identification to cash it because I've had a few problems with the bank. Why don't you take this? Here's This is my driver's license and my social security card. Once you cash the check for how much? $2,000? Is that enough for you? Bring it back to me and we'll all call it square, all right? You can pay me back whenever you want. The holidays are a tough time for everybody. So as they're sneaking, not sneaking, as they're walking past this dude, yeah. the doorman says, that's the fiance, huh? I heard she was scary. 
I heard she was a real nightmare. I heard that when the two of them went into the room, they was in there fucking, and it was worse than when Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt were fucking in that island place, and they had to call security to come in and make sure nobody was getting killed. Which, by the way, is my favorite celebrity fucking story of all time. When they were fucking and they had to call, like, hotel security because it was so loud and raucous. That's pretty good. You know, you know Jennifer Aniston. That really had to, uh... That had to make her snarl her lip a little bit. When when the cops show up, you showed up. You mean? No, just hearing about the fact that her ex boyfriend, husband, or whatever they were, was fucking who arguably at the time was the most beautiful woman on planet Earth, fucking the most beautiful man on planet Earth so loudly that they had to call like hotel security to make sure no one was being killed in the room. <laughs> There, there's a reason they were together. And also, do you think at that point she had taken off the vial of blood that Billy Bob Thornton gave her? I think she had swallowed it, and they were they were waiting to fish it out. Oh, my God. What do you do with your vials of blood? Oh, I keep them. Oh. You never know when you're going to need a good hex. You need blood and hair for that, Chad. I swallow vials of blood just so when I go to the doctor, he's like, have you seen a lot of blood in your stool? I'm like, there's blood in all my stools. I don't think you should be proud of that. <laughs> what are we talking about? So, yeah, so Lucy is helping him get this love seat into Peter Gallagher's apartment, and they end up just having to cram it through and bust this door frame up, and she breaks this vase filled with, like, Barber's blue water, and then Bill Pullman says, hey, let's just put this over the stain. Jesus Christ, what's that smell? It's just it's Oh, that's cat. My eyes are watery. Oh, wait, that's a, is that cat dead? Oh, I don't know. I forgot about feeding it. Or maybe I didn't. Who knows? I'm happy-go-lucky that way. And so they head down from this cat funeral <laughs> uh-huh. where a car has blocked this moving van from behind. Uh-huh. Lucy is like, well, sucks for you. See you later. <laughs> and starts taking off. He's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, maybe I could walk you back the 20 plus miles to your apartment. How's that sound? I'm fine. Uh, no, that sounds terrible. I don't need you. And he's like, well, it's for my safety. He's like, ah, all right, whatever. Apparently you have no balls. Brothers one up <laughs> on you, but sure, whatever. Let's go. And on this walk, she gives her full sob story about how her mom died mm -hmm. and that all she wanted to do was go to Florence uh -huh. for her life. And in fact, in her right in her pocket, Chad, uh -huh. she's got a passport that has no stamps in it, but she is ready to travel at any moment. Anybody that walks around just in their day-to-day -day life with their passport on them, they always need an escape. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like those people that back their car into their driveway just in case I need to get a, a quick getaway. I'm surprised he didn't read this passport and go, who's Stacy? <laughs> oh, that's my other name. <laughs> Middle name. Ah, whatever. <laughs> Why do you have blonde hair in this picture? That's from the blind side. <laughs> As they walk along on December, what, 20. 7th 8th whatever day it is uh, i'm gonna go 8th on this one yeah and they're just trotting along multiple miles in the freezing chicago december air lucy says you know you know jack you really remind me of my dad which that's a red flag on any first date oh yeah <laughs> you remind me of my mom or my dad that's never something you want to hear first date second date any date best case scenario you shout that out really loud during your first good fight so that you can end this relationship immediately <laughs> you remind me of my mom. Go to hell! I'm leaving <laughs> you. I wouldn't give you the satisfaction. 
boom, boom. <laughs> As a wise man once said, sometimes murder suicides turn into murder feel a whole lot better. About this time, Jack steps in dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's pretty good and then as they're walking along like he ends up slipping on some ice and they end up like hugging he each other some more dog shit <laughs> it's another the dog had the runs <laughs> probably probably drink some milk they get back to her apartment building and they do this thing where there's ice out front and they slip and slide and fall into each other's arms and they giggle and laugh like a couple of drunks and i don't think that dog shit made things any better and there's this ballet of ding doggedness that's going on and they get real close to each other and they might kiss Bo because they've known each other two days but they don't now instead she finally goes inside and he kind of lingers until she's gone there's actually one of my favorite deliveries of this movie is when lucy goes inside and joe jr comes out at the bottom of the stairs as she's climbing them and says listen i just want to know is it gonna be him or me and she goes him just very quick and matter of fact i really i thought that was quite funny just leaving him standing there like the asshole that he is wearing a, a robe and a wife beater and he's wearing boxer shorts that clearly has a boner in his pants uh probably because he's wearing some of her shoes inside he's got her panties on under the boxer shorts makes him feel sexy chad and they play this whole him and women's clothing thing up it it progressively builds throughout the film does it yeah because at the end when he's all crying and stuff she's like you want to try on some of my shoes he's like yeah he's talking about how much he likes her black panties and bras and stuff oh i thought that was just a, a weird come on i didn't take that as he wanted to wear it but all right that was my read she ends up watching out her window as uh jack walks away Mm -hmm. and then we cut to jerry's outside in quotes office (laughs) be not dog and we're like what december 28th 29th christmas is gone bo christmas don't matter in this movie at all she says oh my god i'm having an affair with jack and he's not the guy in the coma that's peter so i'm cheating on this guy in a coma who doesn't know i exist with jack who does know i exist and at this point jerry's like whoa, whoa, whoa let me stop you there you're fucking crazy mm-hmm. you need to pull the plug on all of this yep and she's like I-, I can't do that you're no help at all and then she just storms off when jerry says to lucy she should pull the plug on the whole situation i thought what if she went and killed peter to be with jack just grab a pillow and smother him i'd make a hell of a movie right show how nuts she really is again see double indemnity <laughs> crisscross we had a deal crisscross i don't know that she's ready to murder yet you know i feel like she needs to escalate a little more but it's in her future you know speaking of crazy people let's go back to the hospital where jack is playing poker with the movie comatose brother peter and jack is playing both sides of a game where the strategy to win the game involves only knowing your cards and reading your opponent's moves and reactions right like Mm -hmm. what blackjack be a more appropriate card game for them to play like playing poker is like them playing battleship or guess who unless you're playing i guess five card stud in which case it doesn't really matter what is on your face you don't get to swap out the cards there's no bluffing anyway i'm overthinking all of this and uh, are thinking about it way more than the screenwriters ever did isn't this a lazy screenplay that's a leading question do you think this is a lazy screenplay? And if so, how awful is it? And is it more awful than I think it is? I think it's less awful than that, but I think it's unfortunate that it didn't button up some of the stuff that would have made this an actually really good movie. 
during this scene, there's this heart to heart moment that does not ring true at all, where Jack is having a conversation with his brother who's in a movie coma, and he's talking about how he never really envied him for all of his success and the fact that he had such big balls and how he's kind of happy that he only has one now. But at the very end, he says, I've never been envious of anything you have until now. And then Jack says, I'll tell you what, let's cut the cards. High card gets Lucy because she is an object and not a person capable of making her own decisions. And he cuts the cards and he loses. He's like, damn, two out of three. So he cuts them again. Uh, best of seven. Shit. Five of eleven. Uh, six of thirteen. Shit. You know what? It's opposite day. I win. I get Lucy. So we go, Chad, to a family dinner. Why is Lucy there? This is like the 28th or 29th. Like just because she's the fiance, is that what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. All they right. love her, Chad. They, they This family has fallen in love with Lucy. Yeah. They're asking Lucy where she's going to go on her, the honeymoon. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of cross chatter about like, oh, their Saul went to Cuba and a bunch of other bullshit. And then finally, talk turns to Jack's type of woman. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he's like, oh, well, I've always preferred uh, chubby blondes. And his sister is like, that's bullshit. You like brunettes. Yeah, brunettes. You know, they look like Sandy Bullock. You've always talked about how much you love Speed and that girl who was the bus driver in Speed <laughs> and how much you wanted to date her and how much you loved her and how much you wanted to kiss her and have her babies. This whole dinner scene, Lucy is giggling and she's tossing these knowing glances over to Jack. And then dinner comes to an end and the family gives Lucy an invite to come back for New Year's Eve. And as she leaves the house, she goes to the front door and the sister says, hey, Lucy and Jack, you two are standing under the mistletoe. You should kiss. No, Bo. No, they shouldn't. No. Because you don't kiss the fiancé of your brother, especially if he's in a movie coma. I couldn't agree more. Mistletoe is a weird tradition anyway. Just the idea of like, oh, you're under this particular plant that you have to perform this action. Like if you're under mistletoe, you have to kiss. If you're under holly, you have to tweak each other's noses. Uh-huh. If you're under poison ivy, you have to smack each other in the ass. <laughs> It's a lot of weird tradition, Shad, is all I'm saying. Remind me not to come to your house at the holidays. Yeah, it's decorated. Nothing but poison ivy, Chad. You can bet your bippy on that. <laughs> After they kiss awkwardly, we cut to Lucy in her toll booth. Pushing or taking tokens. I still don't know what she does for a living. And then Mary, the sister, and her pal come to the booth. Uh, the sister starts talking to Lucy about getting married, and Lucy's co-worker is like, what's going on now yeah when did you get engaged uh-huh and she's like what are you pregnant and lucy says yeah i'm pregnant and yeah. then the sister or her friend hears this and we get another nice comedic bounce in our story that it's sort of escalating not only are you engaged but you're also pregnant yeah and there's this weird moment too where lucy says I mean, you have to have sex to get pregnant. <laughs> Unless you're Mary. She didn't have sex, and she got pregnant with the Lord's baby. Have you read the Bible? Have you heard the good news? I have some pamphlets. <laughs> Angels, we have heard on our feet. <laughs> and then we go back to Peter's apartment where we get another close-up of his answering machine mm -hmm. where there's another message coming in from Ashley Barrett Bacon saying, Listen, Peter, I'm back in town. I really want to get together. I can't believe you didn't call me on Christmas. 
So a, this is just a nice reminder that the movie is giving us of like, hey, this is a character and this is building towards something. Right. One, why don't they show us this character in a photo with him, which would make more sense? I guess that would imply they were together, which we're later going to find out that they're not. But also this whole character could be completely extracted from this film wouldn't make a difference. She does not matter at all she matters less than christmas does in this movie that is one of the problems with the film is that this character should be more relevant but anyway it's new year's eve chad it's been a week since peter's been in a coma you know the family's really moved on with their life they're having dinners they're throwing parties they don't know how long this movie coma's gonna last chad you're not gonna spend all day at the hospital waiting for this dude to wake up well, it's a movie coma this could last for years christopher walken in the dead zone five years movie comas last normally seven days and this is new year's Eve. you make a fine point it, it's either it lasts seven days or it lasts for like 15 years yeah it's three days seven days five days 15 years or it's how long have i been out and there's like spaceships flying around and shit like that so at this new year's dinner that the family is having uh, with a lot of delicious baskin robbins ice cream by the way bo well that's the, the traditional new year's dinner earlier when jack was uh grilling lucy about um like what's his favorite color what's his favorite so he does ask her what's his favorite ice cream and she goes baskin robbins <laughs> like that's not a favorite ice cream <laughs> That'd yeah. be like if I asked you, like, hey, but what kind of pizza do you like? And you're just like, uh, Domino's. Like, I'm ordering pizza. Is there a topic? Domino's. It's a really dumb answer because it's non-specific. Like, I don't like just any kind of ice cream from Baskin Robbins. I specifically like their chocolate chip ice cream because they don't use the little mini chips. They use chocolate flakes. Mm -hmm. and that's important. I cannot disagree with you at all. So, but at this Baskin Robbins inspired dinner for New Year's <laughs> Eve. The sister announces to everyone, guess what, everybody? Lucy is pregnant. And Jack is like, what the fuck? I'll kill her. And he just rushes off. Joe Jr. shows up at Lucy's door. She's getting ready for a New Year's party of her own. Uh-huh. A.K.A. a bottle of Jack Daniels and an evening with a cat. <laughs> but he shows up at her door with clearly flowers that are placed around the neck of a horse after it wins a race. She's like, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need the flowers. I've got a party to go to. Those pockets aren't going to pick themselves. You know, you look pretty good to me. Loose. I can move it with you. My papa knocked $50 off to rent. Is that that other guy? I saw the way you was looking at him. You was like you was looking at your first Trans Am, Loose. She gives him this hug. Uh-huh. And he goes, so you wear the black bra? I love the black underwears. I do like the plural of underwears in that line, but it's ridiculous. And so Jack shows up. No, 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 Bo. The camera pans back to reveal Jack creepily eavesdropping at the bottom of the stairs. After Joe Jr. leaves and she's coming down the stairs, he's like, hey, I don't mean to scare you, but how about I drive you to whatever party you're going to? <laughs> That's okay. I don't need you to follow along with me. I'm just going to a party with my friends. Uh, you, you should go on your own merry way. No, no, it's fine. I'll go with no, you. I, I insist. You don't need to come to this party. This is not a scene for I you. I said I'm going with you. And then they go to this party where there's a whole who's on first between Lucy and her boss, Jerry, uh, about who Jack is and who the fiance is and all this stuff. She's drinking some punch and Jack is like, hey, I don't think you should be doing that. I don't think you should be telling me what to do. We've only known each other a week. All right. If I want to get drunk, I'm going to get drunk. But isn't that 
bad for the baby record scratch everybody in this room is like oh what (laughs) and we immediately cut to her walking home a few steps ahead of jack as he's chasing behind her and like on new year's eve which is pretty much the way most couples head back to their apartments on new year's eve with one of them angrily six strides ahead of the other (laughs) he is profusely apologizing about the fact that he has ruined not just this evening but several days of her life recently Uh and he also confronts her about leading chad yeah it's gross i saw the way that joe jr and you were talking you leaned and she's like what (laughs) what what is this nonsense you're talking about now Mm -hmm. he's like you know leaning it leaning means wanting and wanting means fucking. <laughs> Joe Jr. shows up. Hey, Luce, it's me, Joe Jr. You want me to come out there by the big of the get a goon good ing? Alright, hey, I'll give him the old time of the goon, guy. No, he's fine. Just everyone get away from me. What do you mean leaning? And Joe Jr. is like, hey, he's leaning. He's leaning over there. If you need some help with this leaning son of a bitch, I'll come over there and give him a bugaboo. <laughs> Jack finally says, like, it was Mary, my sister. I'm going to throw her under the bus in this scene. <laughs> she was the one who thought you were pregnant and told us all. She what? I'm not pregnant? But wait a minute. I guess you're the kind of guy who would only want a girl like me if you thought I was pregnant. What is going on in this movie now? They're having their official romantic comedy argument, but it gets kind of real in a way <laughs> that it shouldn't. They start throwing the deep cut shit. They've known each other <laughs> a week and they were immediately lobbing the most hateful stuff they could possibly say to one another. That's the kind of stuff you tuck away for six months, a year, two years, and you're like, oh yeah, you want to play hardball? Let's play hardball. Yeah. They start with that. Right off the bat, she's like, yeah, you you think I don't know anything about families? I don't think you're having a conversation with your dad, huh? Sounds like I know more about your family than you do, motherfucker. Maybe your dead dad would be happy knowing that you're working as a token booth pusher, taker, planning all these vacations that you're never going to go on, loser. You son of a bitch. <laughs> That's not what happens, but it would be great. But they met like four days ago. Yeah. He didn't show up till three days after the accident, and they're already saying the most hurtful personal shit that they know about one another. But there will be blood in this relationship. Oh, yeah. This is a <laughs> volatile relationship. This is one of those, like, we're going to argue for six hours and then fuck for eight, you know? <laughs> He follows her up the stairs to her apartment, and as she's going inside, he says, look, at least you got my brother. She says, you know, Jack, I don't have anybody, and then shuts the door on his face. (laughs) Oh, some just good emotional haymakers going on. It's like the dinner scene of Hereditary. Then we cut to the hospital where we know it's New Year's Eve because the hospital staff is all singing Old Lang Syne. Uh, and getting drunk as they do at the hospital. Oh, sure. Listen, my girlfriend's a nurse. They're drunk all the time. And Peter wakes up. He comes to. He's like, wait, do I smell booze? <laughs> uh, the next day, Lucy is walking in and the dad, Peter Boyle, meets her at the elevator. And he's like, we've got great news. Peter's awake. And she's like, oh boy. Oh shit. So they ride the elevator up, go into the room where the whole family is assembled. Lucy is there as well. Peter is like doing the rundown of like, okay, I know you. Nice to see your dad. Nice to see your sister. Nice to see your grandma. Nice to see your mom. 
nice to see wait a second who the hell are you the way this is shot is perfectly executed and it's not a hard one to pull off of going face to face to face and he gets to lucy then he goes to the next person and then just fans back it's a funny moment and especially sandra bullock who again she does a good job in this of just standing there kind of awkwardly grinning ear to ear like the crazy person that she is yeah and then peter looks at lucy and he says who who are you and you're like oh shit the jig is up but then the dad steps in and says oh my god he's got movie amnesia dude this doctor straight off of gilligan's island (laughs) starts explaining how this crazy crackpot scheme could possibly be true Mm. well let me tell you what happens once you get (laughs) cut into the noggin and your, your brains get all scrambled in Guggen. That's what happens when you not be able to keep in the Guggen to straighten. All right? You're all cuckoo in the medicine. Understand? Now, normally, a man like this would have been hit on the head with a coconut. In this case, it was a subway train. Could be anything. Normally a coconut, but subway train works too. And so he only forgets a couple of things. That's what they explain. Selective amnesia, essentially, is what I've they... I've used that excuse <laughs> a time or two. Yeah. <laughs> Selective amnesia. <laughs> aka blacking out lucy is about to come clean yeah, she's like guys i gotta tell you something look i was never and the grandmother says lucy let me stop you right there we know you're not pregnant wink wait what before she can react to that the doctor calls him back in one family come in here i need to explain something else to you it has to do with the, the single testicle all right mom put on this glove i'm going to need you to get down to and do an examination on your son no no not the testicle you're going around back mom <laughs> saul stops lucy before she can take off for the exit oh my god saul what are we gonna do they're wise to us all right look i know a guy okay i got a go bag stored downstairs in the back of a <laughs> 76 chevy all right we can we can get out of town we can go to mexico listen lucy you're not gonna need it i'm gonna take care of all of this i'm too old for them to kill also (laughs) i got a line with the dad i got his ear he will believe anything i tell him and i got a doozy you're gonna tell them what's going on and you're gonna set this straight right i'm not going back to jail i'm not trust me neither of us going back to jail if it comes to that i got two bullets one for each of us all right you do me i do you i think it's more of a i do you then we see where things go lucy leaves thinking saul's gonna set things straight but then saul just goes the other way and hides he just heads for the shitter (laughs) and back in the hospital room peter gallagher is being coached by the family about lucy he's like i don't know what you people are talking about you know lucy Uh, jack shows up late to the game as usual There's always one family member that's rolling in like 30 minutes to an hour late to everything. And the doctor ends up being like, listen, everyone, it's time for all of you to go home. We have to get him at a, you know, I have mallet. We're going to hit him in the head every six hours now until his memory comes back. You did not have very good insurance, all right? This is the best we're going to be able to do. <laughs> so Saul comes out of the bathroom where Lucy is like, I thought you were going to tell them they don't know shit. Loose, loose, loose. We totally had a miscommunication. Um, I went in there and took a dump. <laughs> I said I was going to make things better. And by that, I meant my bowels. I don't have good shits anymore, Lucy. I'm an old man. <laughs> This is one of the best I've had in 15 years. Now I'll deal with your whatever it is. I will say that 
aside from Sandra Bullock, Peter Gallagher playing Peter is having the most fun with his role in this movie. He's very light and comedic. He does a good job for the, what, 18 minutes that he's actually allowed to speak in this movie. Yeah, well, because after being gaslighted by his family about this fiance, uh, he lies in bed and sings the alphabet just to make sure he knows it. Once more, Jack is taking Lucy home in his, in his old busted moving truck. I don't think Jack has a driver's license. I He used to have a driver's license. And then the DUI started piling up. <laughs> he traded it for a couple of rocks. <laughs> I'll suck your dick, <laughs> says Jack in this fake movie. But Lucy, uh, as she's getting out of this, <laughs> his house, um jack has, you know he's got a couple of blankets in the back of this truck that he uses to sleep in and lucy is getting out and she's like you know i just gotta tell you you have been great this past week you did a lot of terrible things but i really respected all of it but now i gotta go she gives him a goodbye on the way out to let us as the audience know like she expects she's about to put that passport to good use like she's going to bangkok she's going to disappear yeah she says you know things are really gonna be different tomorrow <laughs> and jack says you know i know i said a lot of bad things about you and my brother peter but you guys are gonna make a great couple and i'm i'm glad you're not gonna be alone anymore she's like no i'm not gonna be alone that's for sure see ya and so she takes off and this is probably my other favorite scene in the movie is where jack goes to his dad with uh some dunkin donuts to let us know that they're they got a couple of uh shekels in this movie too well aren't they owned by the same people that own baskin robbins where i live there's a dunkin donuts baskin robbins hybrid like we get you in the morning we get you in the evening stop by in the midday we'll make something happen too <laughs> We'll put them together. <laughs> He's talking to his dad, who is going through the obituaries. He's like, oh boy, the, this whole week with the crazy coma son and this whole thing with Lucy, I haven't been able to check the obituaries and really horn in on some of this good furniture. And it reminded me of the speech that Charles Durning has in Home for the Holidays. Shame on you for comparing these two scenes. Where he says, you know, every once in a while in life, you get one minute where everybody's happy and everybody's healthy and you can all just relax for one minute. And Jack says, Pop, this isn't that minute. Yeah, I'm thinking about Jason Robards in Parenthood. You never get to spike the football. <laughs> like Life is full of shit. The thing I like about this scene is it kind of builds up where you think that this is just going to kind of destroy the father. And he goes, well, why didn't you tell me you wanted to make your own furniture? I could have sold this business 10 years ago and made a bunch more money. Eh, whatever. It's fine. Because nothing in this movie matters. You're right that it lowers the stakes dramatically. It's kind of that Ted Lasso thing of like, you think the scene is going to be one thing and it turns out to be another. And, and I kind of like that. I thought this movie was going to be good and it turned out to be terrible. Is it like that? <laughs> no. At the hospital, mm -hmm. Peter Gallagher is rattling off all this obscure shit he remembers, like his eighth grade locker combination, uh -huh. the name of the first girl that he fingered, and all kinds of stuff. Right. Saul chimes in, I want to talk to Peter alone. Everybody get out of here. But where are we going to go? Out of here. All right. Look, Peter, you're smart. You make a good living, but you're a putz. All right. There's something you need to know about Lucy. 
look, she's your fiance, and she saved your life. When she comes in here today, you look at her eyes, and if you don't fall in love with her, then you just need to break up with her or propose to her, all right, and get married. That's what you need to do. Which is actually not the worst way out of this situation, is to put it all on him to be like, look, you don't remember her, so if you have any feelings for her, then you can stay engaged for a while, although that's not what happens, but you can stay engaged for a while and see if the magic is still there, or break up with her. Either way, Saul comes out smelling like a rose, all right? Right, and so does she. Like, the grift is 100% good. Like any good grift, the victims of it leave it thinking that they were the ones who did something wrong. Lucy shows up at the hospital with Peter's box of belongings and Lucy comes in and she sits with Peter and they chat and Peter doesn't come across as a putz in this at all. He seems like he's a reformed man. And Lucy talks about how Peter always gives up his seat every day on the L train and that he's a really good guy. And then we come back to Peter's apartment and in the lobby, this bitchy blonde woman who is the mysterious Ashley has shown up and she's the one has been leaving all the messages on the answering machine. And the doorman's like, hey, excuse me, Mish, uh, you're not allowed to go in there. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm Peter Gallagher's fiance. He's like, ah, oh, you're not a fiance. She, his fiance looks like Sandy Bullock. You know, you look more like, you know, a Fox News anchor woman. And she's like, you know, fuck you. I'm going upstairs. <laughs> yeah. And, and so Jack shows up in time at the hospital to help Peter move to a new floor. And they have this conversation about how Peter is like, you know, ever since uh, I talked to Lucy, I feel rejuvenated. I've never, I've never been more alive. And I just feel like I need to confess some things. And Jack is like, oh boy, I don't want to hear any of this. And he goes, I've never been faithful to a woman, Jack. Never once. I've fucked around on every woman I've ever been with, but not anymore. And I got to tell you something about those squirrels. I knocked those squirrels out of their nest in the first place. And then I saved them. Yeah. There was some bullshit story about how he saved squirrels. And Jack is filling in some gaps for him about Lucy. Peter says, you know, there's just something about her. I just, I, I, and Jack says, yeah, and she just drives you so crazy. You don't know whether to hug her or arm wrestle her, which is a weird choice. Yeah, strangle her, take her corpse, drive out in the middle of nowhere, dig a shallow grave, bury it, defecate on it, put a gun in your mouth and propose marriage and end it all right there. No, that's not it, Jack. Uh, which is the line he gives when he, after all the, his spiel, he's like, that's not it. And so Jack wanders off to leave. Peter talking to himself while an orderly is standing by. Yeah, Jack's an asshole. He just leaves his brother there. That's why they are perfect for each other. Saul meets Lucy at the entrance to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And she's like, is this good? Are we good? Can I walk back Luce, in there? Or Luce, am I going to be, listen. am I going to walk in there to police? No. Saul, no. You, so help me. You're not going to, you're not, what? I've taken care of it. No, look, here's what you need to know. I didn't tell the family anything about this bullshit situation. I came up with an escape hatch. All right. Is, is that escape hatch big enough for the both of us all? Because that's what I need to know. It's big enough for most of us. All right. Let's just see how this plays out. Just be cool, Lucy. Don't rock the boat. Saul, you're fired. I don't. I know that I'm not paying you anything. I'm fired. I know fired. I haven't promised you a cut. I'm fired. You are fired. You're fired. You're fired first. I said it first. You're fired. Lucy, Lucy. I got the Oxycontin. I don't want any part of that. You know, I'm like, I'm like Vito Corleone. You know, no, I don't mess with the drugs. Have you ever taken it like a suppository? You know, up the butt? No, no. I do it like they do on Dope Sick, where I just put it in my mouth for a little while so that the, the coating 
is melted away, mm-hmm. and then I rub it on my sleeve, and then I pound it up into dust, and I snort it that way. You should really try it. A suppository. Just the same way you take a Flintstone vitamin. Up the shitter. Saul, I'm going inside. I'm going to let him know what's going on. All right. I'm blowing this whole thing up, Saul. Oh, don't do that. If you're you're looking for me, I'm going to be anywhere but in the bathroom. Anyway, she heads up to talk to Peter and the family. When she goes inside, though, Lucy enters and we see Ashley, the fiance girlfriend come in the hospital too and you're like "Uh oh there's gonna be conflict between these two but when they get in the elevator they go to different floors which one i don't know how ashley knows the floor that peter is on and why lucy goes to the floor that he's not on but again details don't matter so Ashley shows up in Peter's room to call him a scumbag. Uh, he's sharing this room with this George Costanza stunt double. Yeah, who is just eating his fruit cup and watching this thing like a soap opera. And Ashley is like, well, if we're broken up, I, I came back here to get re-engaged or marry you. And he's like, you decided to leave me. You're the one who moved to Portugal or whatever. Yeah, you can't do that. If someone asks you to get married and then you say no, know and you leave the country you can't come back and take these backsies or something like that right like just kidding i think you can try for that but you have to be a lot more humble Uh and you have to kind of be willing to accept the consequences you gotta do tricks (laughs) for sure (laughs) and she is way too haughty about it where she's like well if we're officially broken up i want all all of my stuff back and he goes yeah well i'll take my things back like that nose I paid uh, for. She's like, and how about these tits? You bought them too. You want them? You can have them. You one bald bastard. <laughs> and when she lets that one go, uh-huh. the schlub in the next bed is really like, this is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like somebody dropped their tray in the lunchroom. <laughs> and she storms out. Peter looks over at this dude who gives him a thumbs up uh-huh. uh, just to let him know, like, hey, you did a good job there, Pete. <laughs> and then Lucy finds him and Peter ends up proposing. I know that I'm, I've am i got this coconut-based selective amnesia, but <laughs> I do love you and I want to marry you. And then the nurse, who knew that she was never engaged in the first place, passes out. Yeah, but Lucy doesn't say yes, which is a bit of an omission because we then cut to lucy's apartment where she has a white dress draped around her neck like with the coat hanger and she's looking at her shoes like she's wearing a different shoe on each foot and she's raising one foot to see which one looks best there's a knock at the door lucy thinks that it's joe jr and she screams look um i don't want any flowers i i'm not wearing black underwear and we can't move in together and she opens the door and it's jack who says "Mm, i don't have any flowers I wouldn't mind seeing your black underwear, and under the circumstances, we shouldn't move in together. Jack is a creep. Oh, for sure. That's why they're perfect for each other. He passes, by the way, Joe Jr. on the way up, who has his own lady named Phyllis. Uh Uh-huh. When Jack is heading up and passes Joe Jr. and Phyllis, he says, hey, is is Lucy home? He goes, oh, bada bing, is she home? She is the best looking piece of ass in this whole building. Bada boom! Why would you say she's better looking than me? Hey, Phyllis, but you, <laughs> you are the best looking woman on your whole floor. <laughs> Give me a little... Wait a minute. You're the only woman on my own floor. What are you saying? Hey, no! 
So Jack passes by this train wreck of a relationship on his way to Lucy, where, uh, as you said, she's wearing a wedding dress around her neck. And he gives her this snow globe as a, a wedding gift or a, a... I stole this from the bodega downstairs. I assume this came from someone who had recently died. <laughs> Better still. <laughs> I got this from the same place that we got the love seat. I would have given it to you then, but I had to clean all the blood and brains off of it. She grabs it. She looks at this snow globe and she says, oh my God, it's Florence, Italy inside. That is totally the one place I want to go in the world with my passport. And then Jack... He kind of walks off and he goes down the stairs. And as he's walking away, Lucy says, Jack, I need to ask you one question. Is there any reason why I shouldn't marry your brother, Peter, besides the fact that he only has one testicle? And I immediately thought, hey, I'll give you five reasons you should marry him. One, you were obsessed with this guy up until a week ago. He's handsome. He's loaded with money. He almost died and he's not an asshole anymore. Okay. And most important of them all, he's not Jack. She is going to be married a minimum of five times in her life. I think she's already been married three. She just don't talk about it no more. Yeah. One of them's still alive. Yeah. Well, one. Yeah. He's in a coma too. <laughs> Medically induced by Lucy. If he wakes up, you just crank that sedative back up until he's asleep again. But yeah, Jack says he, he can't give her a reason that she shouldn't get married. And so Lucy then takes a wedding invitation, assumedly the next day. To Jerry, uh, this uh, uh, what January second, yeah, third, fourth. What I mean, we're maybe ten days out from when she saved this guy's life. And this is his inside office. He's actually in a chair indoors this time. And Jerry rightfully is like, "You're doing what? You're getting married? What? What about this other guy? What about this Jack guy?" And she says, huh, eh, "He didn't want me, so I went with the other sucker. I mean, man. I mean, whatever." <laughs> She does give this speech about like, you know what? My whole life, all I ever wanted was somebody to love me and somebody to take me places and somebody who has money. And now there's this guy who's super handsome that I was completely obsessed with. And he said he'll marry me. And you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to go to Italy. Jerry's like, this wedding is tomorrow? Are you You're a crazy <laughs> woman? Yeah. What happened to Jack, the other guy? And Lucy has all been in tears. And she goes, he, he didn't want me. Listen, Lucy, I got to tell you, if, if we hadn't taken back that employee of the month placard for that day that you slipped out of the booth, I'd be taking it back right now. Instead, I'm just going to fire you. Lucy, I got to tell you, we have uh, a lot of programs here with city transport, you know, for, for mental wellness. There's somebody you need to talk to or you feel like, you know, just things are falling apart. We can help you with that. And we, as the audience, who have seen romantic comedies before... Uh, we gotta have a wedding in the last reel, though. Th this movie is all but done. Because we have... We've set up the real love of the movie is now off on his own, doing God knows what. And Lucy is determined to marry the wrong guy. Why are they getting married at the chapel? At a hospital? Is that where it is? Yeah, because there are people in gurneys on IVs and shit witnessing this. That's normally where you go when somebody's going to die, not where you're getting married, unless it's because of a, you know, unexpected pregnancy or something like that. I mean, what is marriage but the death of your sex life, am I right? <laughs> anyway, but seriously, Chad. Here's how we can wrap this up. Long story short, Lucy shows up before the wedding starts. She, she kind of comes down the aisle and Lucy herself objects to the wedding. And then mm -hmm. she just confesses to everything, to the family. She's like, we were never engaged. This was all a scam. I'm a grifter. I got a case of the hubba hubbas for Jack and not Peter. 
the one thing I, I really like in this moment is when she says, I want to tell you the truth, but then I fell in love with you uh-huh. as she's talking to the family. And Peter Boyle goes, me? Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, no, no. Well, yes, but all of you really. Yeah. But I think his, his delivery of me. Uh, he's thinking, he's like, I might get to tap that. Right. He's like, I'll listen, I'll drop this old bag in a heartbeat if it means I'm with Lucy. It's not very funny when she confesses and it's not really awkward or charming or romantic it's very bland the music here tries to convince us that this is an overly emotional moment but i just didn't care about any of it and again sandra bullock does the best with what she's given but it rings really hollow you know like the end of harry and the hendersons where they tried to make you feel sad like you did at the end of et but it there's just no like there's no there there i was more sad at this than at the end of et ashley the other fiance she shows up to object to the wedding i was like i kind of forgot that you were part of this movie and then she comes in with her husband who objects to her objection like why does she have a husband and why are we introducing this in the movie now well this just allows this entire place to go crazy gonads which in turn allows lucy to slip away undetected Uh. and so we leave this cacophony in the wedding chapel and go to Lucy, who has now finally taken down her Christmas decorations. Oh, yeah. This is a Christmas adjacent movie. I forgot. Yeah. Christmas time is here, Chad. And then uh, a knock comes at the door, uh, and you see a smile on her face as she believes, oh, this could be The Jack. pizza that I ordered earlier. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, almost, Chad, because instead it's Joe Jr. who has nothing but a pizza on legs. And he says, hey, look, I'm sorry things didn't work out with you and that Jack guy, but hey, don't you eat a bunch of food and get fat. He says that to her. Don't you eat a bunch of food and get fat like my head guy. Uh, Joe Jr., thanks for that wonderful advice, but I'm I'm sure that you're going to find love with Phyllis. And he's like... <laughs> She taught me gabagool. She says, you want to come inside and, and try on some of Lucy's shoes? Bada bing, that'd be great. Bada boom. He's almost the gay best friend. Almost, yes. So Lucy is at the transit booth uh-huh. on her last day, as we learn when uh, one of her friends. What? Yeah. Janice Exposition says, so this is your last day? And she's like, uh-huh. And then uh, we see some people sliding some tokens in. And then, would you know it, Chad, uh-huh. all of a sudden there's an engagement ring. Oh, my God. Somebody's trying to get on the train with a ring. Hey, this doesn't work on the barter system. Even I know that. But she looks up, and there is Jack along with the entire family. That's awkward. And because what if she says no? I mean, like, the humiliation that jack would suffer like he's he's only 48 hours clean well 36 well 30 if you really want to get technical (laughs) but uh he says hey i want to ask you a question can i come in and she says no you can't come in Uh, you you have to have a token so he tosses a token in and she lets him into the booth and then he he doesn't get on one knee he just kind of leans at her and says marry me and she says yeah yeah and then we end this movie chad Mm -hmm. 
with the two of them on the back of an L train uh-huh. that has just Mary draped across the back of yep. it. That's how our movie started, Bo. That's how you, you bookend this shit. Speaking of bookending, we get some voiceover narration like the beginning of the movie, and she says, well, it turns out that Jack took me to Florence, and I guess you could say he gave me the world. And because we haven't said it in this movie yet, let me just say, Peter asked me when I fell in love with his brother, and I told him, while you were sleeping the end this will be a movie you'll never watch again unless you do a stupid (laughs) podcast like we do oh my god (laughs) i can't believe i watched this two times it's a very bland movie there are so many better romantic comedies out there that i could recommend far above this i would not argue with that at all i would say i had a fine time with this it's filled with really good performers it the writing isn't great but everybody is into it you know like nobody is really phoning it in in this movie like everybody's kind of giving it their all there are a couple of good face plants as we talked about (laughs) i do think (laughs) <laughs> that goes a long way with me. Uh, I do think that Sandra Bullock is really charming in this movie because she's just a charming actress. Agreed. And there's a handful of laughs. Not a ton. It's not super funny, but it's charming enough. And they're, I don't know, man, I, I guess it's just my sympathetic nature or whatever. But the story of someone who doesn't have a family searching for one and finding it. Uh-huh. Eh, it kind of works on me. I, I think that it's a, it's a good-hearted movie, and I don't think it ever gets mean or mean-spirited in the course of the film, other than it's about grifters. <laughs> but <laughs> it never gets as dark as the movie The Grifters. Is it great? No. Is it a totally acceptable romantic comedy? Yeah. If you had to recommend a romantic comedy, when you think good romantic comedies, what do you recommend? I actually do like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I think that is another film with two really charming leads, and that carries a lot of the film. Uh I think Love Actually is almost best of type. Because it's not just a romantic comedy, but it's kind of an examination of love in lots of forms. I think it gets most of that really right. Especially around the holidays, if you're looking for a holiday romantic comedy, Love Actually is terrific. Roxanne is up there for me. Roxanne is very good. What about Boomerang? I think Boomerang is like three good scenes and a lot of stuff I don't care about. If you've never seen Annie Hall, despite all of the unpleasantries surrounding Woody Allen, Annie Hall is great. I remember 50 First Dates with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore being entertaining for a movie that Mm -hmm. stars Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. I never really cared for The Wedding Singer, but that's just me. It's been a long time since I've revisited it, but when Harry Met Sally is terrific, that's, you know, two two comedic actors at kind of the height of their game. Meg Ryan is really, really funny yeah. in that. And, and it's a very sweet film as well, and it's uh, got a good end-of-movie speech from Billy Crystal about uh, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to begin right now. I would throw Tootsie out there. Although Tootsie deals with a lot of different themes, that's a very funny movie. And the reveal at the end of Tootsie is so brilliantly layered. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. And you could almost make the argument for like Jerry Maguire as a romantic comedy. It has a lot of those same beats. It, it certainly does. But even, you know, going back to the introduction that I think about romantic comedies where you have characters that are pulled together 
or pulled apart because of all of the shenanigans that are going on, I don't know that Jerry Maguire fits that mold. I think it's just a very romantic, you know, kind of character style. Yeah. But it, it, it's a good romantic movie, nonetheless. Speaking of romance, Chad. I know. Have I got a movie for you? Is it another holiday-adjacent classic? Of course it is. Go on. We've tackled the bottom of the barrel with the ginger dip. Sure. And then we looked at kind of a mid-range, albeit successful, romantic comedy. Uh-huh. And I think now it's time in this season to go full-on blockbuster. What do we got? Have you heard of The Batman? I have heard of The Batman. Well, in this case, it's Batman Returns, which features not just The Batman, but it's got uh, Catwoman. Oh. And it's got The Penguin. Oh, my gosh. Uh, who actually eats a raw fish. That's what penguins do. I know. And it is the follow-up to the 89 Batman, which was one of the most successful movies uh, of of the time. And it is a big-budget, big-star-studded follow-up sequel that somehow doesn't act like a big-budget Hollywood sequel in any way, shape, or form. And it takes place at Christmas? Eh, kind of. <laughs> and also, it features Christopher Walken, and nothing says Christmas like Christopher Walken. It's right there in his name. They call it Christmas Walken. <laughs> so, once again, we will be tackling a superhero-themed movie. Never a good idea. on Uh-huh. In two weeks' time. So come back and see us as we continue this holly jolly festive season of Christmas-adjacent movies. As always, like, rate, review, tell a friend, tell a loved one. You know what? Wrap it up and give it as a Christmas present this year, you cheap bastard. Bo, any final thoughts that you have on While You Were Sleeping? You know this whole podcast is a good grift if the listeners come back for more and thank you for it. (laughs) Suckers.